Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 91 of X Last. And, uh, well, you guys don't know this, but I do. Uh, this is a late night edition of X Lapsed. Uh, it's just been one of those days. Uh, it's, uh, you know, we're going into the end of the year here, which offers us that, that weird double edged sword where, uh, we're kind of invited or demanded to reflect and think about everything you wanted to get done in the uh, previous you know, 12 months. And if you're a digital pack rat like me, you've got a lot of evidence of the stuff you did and didn't do. So uh, <laughs> I've got spent a lot of the day looking over some old scripts and partial scripts and partial projects. And uh, yeah, it's uh, just been one of those days. Um, also, uh, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. That email address, I'm locked out. Uh, I don't have access to it anymore, and I'm not sure when I will have access to it. Uh, I had to download a, uh, like a browser app or a browser, I don't know, add-on, whatever they call it for Chrome, uh, for school, and it wouldn't work, so one of the things they tell you to try to do is, you know, clear your history, you know, clear everything out, clear your cookies, your cache, whatever it is, and, uh, I accidentally lost the password to the Weird Comics History uh, email box. And when I went to retrieve it, Google did that thing where it's like, uh, hey, we'll, you know, we'll text you, a, uh, you know, some sort of a code to your phone so you can say that you're you. And I figured that that's probably the best way to do this. But unfortunately, it's not my phone number. Um, it was Reggie's phone number, which was kind of like kicking me while I was down. So... No access to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com for the moment. Uh, there were a handful of emails that I hadn't yet gotten to that were in there, so if you sent me emails to that address in the past few days, please forward those emails to 90sxmen at gmail.com. 90sxmen, no hyphen, at gmail.com. So uh, that'll be the email address we're going to go with for at least the next little while until I... Until Google takes their 120 hours or whatever it's going to be before they let me know whether or not I'm going to ever have access to that account again. So, with that out of the way, yes, this is a late night edition of X Lapsed, and here we're still on the path to X of Tens. I threw a little hashtag in our, on our cover art, hashtag X of Tens, so if anybody wants to follow along or comment on these stories, please feel free to use that one. And uh, if we look at the cover here, it looks like we're in for a knockdown, drag-out fight between Colossus and Omega Red, possibly paying off that info page from an issue or two back, which uh, I wasn't looking forward to, and I guess that's probably a good thing, because it's not going to happen in this book. Um, now, the book we're covering is X-Force, Volume 6, Number 11, at an October 2020 cover date. 
story is called Red Dawn, written by Benjamin Percy with art by Basil Dua. Basil Dua. I'll get it one of these days. Colors, Goro EFX. Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Robinson White Zabalski. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale August 12th, 2020. Let's get right on in here. Now, we open in the Healing Gardens of Krakoa, where Cecilia Reyes, Beast, and Sage are looking over some corpses of Russian bad guys. Because, of course, Russian bad guys... And I know it's been a minute since we covered an issue of X-Force here on the show, but even still, I feel like we're missing something. Like, are we maybe continuing out of the Pale Girl storyline from Wolverine, not X-Force? I mean, last thing we wrapped up in X-Force was the Terra Verde deal, right? As far as I know, uh, that, the Terra Verde deal, was one of the very few stories in the Dawn of X era that didn't just use Russians as villains, so I'm surprised to see Russians here. I figure this might be a one of those spots where an editorial footnote might have helped. I know both books are written by Percy, right? And if you're listening to this show, you probably know that both X-Force and Wolverine are bit, written by Percy as well. If you're a more casual fan, however, what the hell are you going to do? You're going to be completely lost. Which I guess is the uh, the silver lining is that Marvel's done gone out of their way for the last two decades to kill off the very notion of a casual comics fan, so we probably don't have very many people to worry about. Anyway, back to the issue. Cecilia is a bit nervous about conducting a mass autopsy, because the last time they had done one, the bodies were all rigged with explosives. And she's talking about that weird Reva's Wetworks crew from way back in the first couple of issues of this volume. I don't remember their bodies being rigged. Um... It's very likely it was. It's been a long, long time. So, if so, great use of continuity. If not, okay. Anyway, Cecilia draws her scalpel and then cuts into the first corpse, which reveals a tiny humanoid figure, which springs from the corpse and then stabs her in the throat. So, Cecilia Reyes is now dead. Though, in the sage words of Sage, quote, we can always bring her back. Beast comments that this threat is akin to literal Russian nesting dolls, which I'll concede is pretty clever. Though if I were to guess and project, I'd have to suggest that uh, Percy probably came up with the punchline before the joke and then wrote everything to that payoff. Beast also comments that uh, it would appear as though the Russians have figured out a way to bring themselves back from death, not unlike the mutants of Krakoa. And with that, the half-dozen or so other Russian corpses in the room start to wriggle and skelch as little red humanoids pop out of them. Let's do a roll call. Beast, Sage, Dead Cecilia Reyes, Colossus, and Domino. Double-page spread of creds here. Then we pick back up in the Savage Land, which is uh, one of my least favorite lands on Marvel Earth. Colossus is here farming some miracle mids, uh, like literally dragging a plow behind him. He's visited by Domino, who'd really like to speak with him. But he's not all that interested. In fact, after everything he's experienced of late, he suggests that he might just devote his life back to farming altogether. Domino attempts to reason with him. However, she's interrupted by the arrival of a purple-skinned blonde mutant named Kayla, who seems to have taken a liking to Peter. Info page. It's a story about a Russian writer. Um, it's pretty well written, but doesn't do a whole heck of a lot for me. Back to comics, and we are at the point at Krakoa. Now, Beast is trying to get in contact with Sage, 
even though when we last saw them, they were literally standing right next to one another, uh, we see that one of the Russian nesters has accessed a computer terminal and appears to be trying to get a location on Professor X. Shift scenes back to the Savage Land. Colossus notes that the Madroxes are running toward the gateway, which suggests that, you know, something might be up. It also suggests that the mutants of Krakoa are using Madrox dupes as uh, manual laborers. So, how about that? At least he's not using his spare body parts to distract zombies. I guess that's a step up, right? Ugh. Okay, now, many Madroxes are attacked upon trying to enter the gateway, and so Colossus armors up, and he rushes in himself. What he finds on the other side is basically a full-blown war between the X-Men and whatever these Rus Russian nesters are. And they look like monsters at this point. Uh, they kind of... Their skin kind of resembles Domino's weird Krakoa cannon that Forge gave her back in the day. Speaking of which, Domino is going to go in guns blazing against these monsters here. And she's going to complain that she doesn't have enough ammo to take them down. To which, I gotta ask, why isn't she wearing that gross Krakoa cannon? It's there, right? Anyway, Beast warns that this offensive might just be a diversion. And, uh, well, he's absolutely right. Because elsewhere... Black Tom rushes to the professor to inform him that the island is under attack. He takes Charles into some veg-like panic room for safekeeping. We see, however, in the tall grass that one of the Russian nesters is hiding and biding its time. Then, with Tom and Chuck out of the way, the nester heads inside wherever the professor was hanging out and swipes the Cerebro sword. Now, that's the sword that Magneto created out of the busted Cerebro helmet that Xavier was wearing when he had his brains blown out back in issue number one. And I gotta figure, we are on the path to Exaten, so I suppose it's time to put some swords in, in hands, right? Hmm. From here we go to an info page, and it's more on that Russian writer, and uh, there's a bit where it's written in Cyrillic, which we have seen a number of times in this book of late. And we've theorized, and I think we're gonna find out uh, how that's going to play out at the very end of this issue. Now back to comics, and Domino is still fighting off some nesters. She questions how many times these things are going to reveal smaller humanoids, as, with, as it would seem with each death another emerges. And so she figures, screw it all, and just starts tossing grenades. Colossus then takes a big nester, a big monstrous one, and throws it into the sun? Well, he throws them really far. We don't see it land, but still, we probably shouldn't assume that it's dead. But it's good enough for Domino and Beast. Now, with the job done, Colossus heads back to the Savage Land. Says, you know, I'm, I'm still not back. So, there you go. Elsewhere, Phoebe Cuckoo and Quentin Quire are making out in a bush. They part company, and Quentin appears to be over the moon in love. Just then... Stop me if you heard this one before. He is stabbed in the heart by the Cerebro Sword. You get it? Quentin dies in every issue. This this is funny, right? 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 Come on, laugh, damn it. Come on, this is funny. No, no, it's not. Stop this. Ah, boy. A dying choir is then drop-kicked through a nearby gateway by that tiny Russian nester. He emerges out the other side at the feet of Mikhail Rasputin. Mikhail re removes the Cerebro Sword out of Quentin's corpse, and it would appear that we're off to the races. That's X-Force number 11. Next time, we will be talking about Excalibur number 11, which uh, 
does not have a path to X of Ten's little tab on it. We're still in other world there. We're still in other world. But yeah, we'll talk about that next time. Now let's talk about this one. First thing right off the bat, what an awesome Colossus vs. Omega Red fight in this issue, huh? Yeah, I, I don't even know. Um, and I'm sorry, my main takeaway from this issue is uh, is totally being informed by the sour taste I have left in my mouth from the ending gag. And the overused gimmick of this book, killing Quentin Quire, or really any character, for hu- comedic effect? Stop it. This isn't funny. I think we're supposed to be, like, uproariously laughing at this. Like, these scenes of Quentin dying are like Kramer bursting into Jerry's apartment on Seinfeld. We're, like, like supposed to laugh and applaud, right? Only it's not funny. And it never was. Who who were they writing this for? Certainly not X-Men fans. I mean, sure, Quentin is a little jerk. That's kind of his entire character. But this is just dumb. I did see an upcoming cover for X-Force from an issue of Marvel Previews, and it has Quentin Quire on it wearing a t-shirt that says something along the lines of, like, I was killed or I died a hundred times and all I got was this stupid t-shirt. Which tells me that this gimmick isn't dying anytime soon, and that sucks because this isn't funny. This really isn't funny. We talk a lot about how humor doesn't land all the time in these Dawn of X books. This is another case of it not. And, I mean, we've also talked a lot, probably too much, about the devaluing of death in these books. And while death doesn't carry the same sort of weight as it had in the past, can we at least treat it with a tiny bit of respect? I mean, even Cecilia Reyes, she dies early in this issue. I don't know that she's ever died before. This might be her first actual death. And it was met with a shrug and a, oh, well, we'll bring her back. No big deal. That's not good. That's not good writing, that's not good storytelling, that's just not good world-building. That's not good. Hopefully our eventual destination will make these more irritating parts of the journey seem worthwhile in hindsight. I'm not holding my breath. What else we got here? The Russian nesting dolls, which is pretty clever, as I mentioned. Um, I still wonder, though, where exactly on the doll did the Russians touch our Dawn of X creative teams? It feels like like not only are we listening to the same record over and over, but it's stuck skipping on the same lyric. I mean, can we maybe get different threats, different villains? Hmm? Hopefully X of Tens and Beyond will deliver us some more interesting threats. So, I mean, they couldn't be any worse, right? Um, the Colossus and Domino scene felt kind of tacked on. Like it didn't get near as much play as I would have wanted it to. Especially considering it was some of the strongest stuff in this entire volume a couple issues back. I'm sure we'll be getting more out of Colossus, though, considering his weirdo brother looks to be the big bad for the next little while anyway. Uh, The art was nice. uh, Suitably gory, given the nesting doll gimmick. Um, Overall, though, this issue felt like a means to an end. Like we had to get the Cerebro Sword into Mikhail's hands, and, uh, well, it's exactly what they did. Editorial footnotes would have been keen in the opening pages, considering we're picking up from a storyline in a whole other book without warning. I'm really not sure what editors do nowadays. But really, there should have been something here to tell us that we were picking up from Wolverine Solo, um, and which issues that folks should check out if they're interested in checking it out. Though, maybe they were doing the readers a kindness and not telling them where to find it, since that story wasn't all that great to begin with. 
Uh, there is something on like the uh, the roll call page that says Wolverine and the Marauders, uh, you know, fought Russians. It's like, but where? I mean, we know. I know. If you're listening, you probably know. But somebody just going into a comic store actually, you know, got bonked on the head and fell through a comic shop door and decided to buy something. They're not going to have the first foggiest idea where to where to follow their stories. And I mean, it's even confusing for us. So, what sort of hope would a brand new comic fan have going into this cold? But uh, that was X Force number eleven. Don't have a whole heck of a lot more to say about it. It's uh, like I said, it was a means to an end, and uh, probably more than a little over reliant on some overused gimmicks. So, that's that. Before we get out of here, let's hop into the mailbag here. And uh, again, if anybody wants to write in, 90sxmen at gmail.com for, for the next little while. We're going to start with Damien. He's talking about Empire colon X-Men number three. He says, I didn't mind this issue. I know I'm damning with faint praise, but it was a perfectly fine action adventure. I might feel differently had I spent $5 on it. And I probably spent two fifty on it. I want to say that the Empire cash-ins were all 50% off at DCBS. I still feel ripped off. <laughs> Maybe this is a uh, this is a Marvel Unlimited. You have to read it there to, to get anything out of it sort of a situation. Uh, Damien continues, I particularly love the Beast scene. Whoever wrote that part of the story is clearly not reading X-Force. I'm slightly worried that when Ben Percy reads this issue, he'll feel the need to write a scene where Beast has stolen some piece of science from horticulture during this issue. And I mean, it's funny you say that because, as you know by now, that's pretty much exactly what happens in the very next issue. Um, But uh, like I said during our Empire discussions, I was so surprised, pleasantly surprised, by the Beast scenes because... uh, I mean, I stand by that this was probably the best use of the character in well over a decade. It felt like a happier and less evil Hank McCoy. But, and, I mean, that's not a fellow we've seen in way too long in the, uh, in the books these days. Damien continues, By the way, it's Hox, Pox, Docs, Rocks, as the new era is the Reign of X. Following from X of Tens, there's a possibility that it might actually be Reign of Ten, but I completely refuse to entertain that notion. I swear Hickman is going to try to convince us that we've been reading the Ten Men for decades. And, oh man, I hope it's not Reign of Ten, but I can—I bet it will be. Um, it's like Hickman can't, still can't get over how Grant Morrison made it so Weapon X was actually Weapon Ten, and now he's making it so like every single use of the letter X over the past 60 years was actually just a Roman numeral 10. And I mean, it was clever when Morrison did it. But this just feels forced, which feels like a criticism I levy at a lot of current year writers, especially those in Grant Morrison's shadow. I mean, you're not reinventing the wheel. You're not rewriting the language of comics if all you're doing is amplifying what the writers who came before you already did. Uh, that's something we talked about a lot on uh, our Young Animal Gatherings with uh, Doom Patrol, because uh, Gerard Way, the uh, lead singer of My Chemical Romance, and uh, I guess he does comics when he feels like it, uh, he was basically a Grant Morrison tribute band. Everything was was Morrison amped to, uh, to, to 11, and it missed so much of the charm in Morrison's work by just repeatedly just like punching you in the face with the fact that hey it, this is like morrison this is like morrison and uh it's like just stop <laughs> please just stop 
Uh, Damien continues. You talk about the rest of the Marvel Universe and crossovers in general really brings up a lot of my issues with comics. I love comics, and I'm not averse to crossovers. I discovered U.S. Marvel with The Mutant Massacre and DC with Millennium, and I bought every issue I could get my hands on. But back then, comics were 40 pence each. I could buy you the entire Mutant Massacre for £4.80, I think that's how you say that, which is less than you spend on one issue of Empire X-Men. Millennium was much bigger cost was a much bigger cost at £18 for 45 issues. This four-part series is more expensive than that. Expecting readers to buy all the crossovers is ultimately going to contract your readership because many people will not be able to spend the £200-plus pound necessary to follow the line-wide crossover. Numerous times over the years I've dropped books because they're in perpetual crossover and I was getting an incomplete story. At present, I'm only buying X books from Marvel and I'm not getting all of them. Although I did buy all of X of Tens. I buy nothing from DC. I'm more likely to drop a book or skip an issue if it, if it has a tie-in to a crossover I don't like. I loved X of Tens, but I imagine there were people who hated it. During X of Tens, Marauders published three issues, which only included one character from the Marauders cast, Storm. I imagine the people who weren't into X of Tens will have dropped Marauders in anger, and I'd understand why. That's a great point, and um, it reminds me of that story of why Peter David left X-Factor uh, shortly after Executioner's Song back in the early 90s. I want to say it was X-Factor number 83. It's got a uh, it's got a very striking cover. It's uh, almost completely black with uh, Bishop, Wolverine, and Cable on it. And that entire issue, I want to say, featured zero members from the actual X-Factor cast. It was just Bishop, Wolverine, and Cable. <laughs> I couldn't imagine how folks who didn't read the entire line must have felt about that. Because I'm sure there had to have been at least a handful of X-Factor-only readers out there. Just as I'm sure there's probably at least a handful of Marauders-only readers nowadays. I've talked to some people who have said, Marauders is my book. That's my only X-book. Because it's the only one they like. So I'm sure there are people out there who were probably very irritated. And... I think the industry, they're so over-reliant on exploiting us and uh, exploiting the, the addicted, right, and the compulsive like, like myself, where they don't realize how easy a habit this is to kick for normal people, right, for people who are more mentally balanced than I. Uh, something we talked about in a Weird Comics History episode where we discussed the fifth week was talking about the, the the habitual buyer. You know, someone who goes to the comic shop every week because they go to the comic shop every week and then might pick up a couple issues. But on the fifth week, if they go and Marvel didn't put anything out and DC didn't put anything out, and they didn't get their Spider-Man or their Superman or their Batman comic that week, it's pretty easy for them to realize, hey, maybe I don't need this in my life. You know, I, I didn't get it last week and I didn't miss it. So it's like... Maybe take better care of the, uh, the the people who are left. Uh, having none of the Marauders cast barring Storm in those issues, that's very um, it's very wrongheaded, but it's also very Marvel. It's it stinks. Now the uh, the endless crossovers was actually one of the reasons why I've dropped a lot of my Marvel pull list. Um, I've long said that I used to be the the one of everything Marvel zombie. Every single thing with a Marvel logo on it. I didn't care if it was reprints. I didn't care if it was 
uh, X-Men animated series manga tie-ins. I, I didn't care about any of that. If it said Marvel, I was buying it. But nowadays, there's just no way to justify such an unnecessary expense. I mean, I've dropped complete families of books because there was just no way to do it. And, it, and you know, when you think about it, it's not as though any of these crossovers will actually hold up, right? These aren't seminal stories being told. These are just the quarterly, you know, blockbuster popcorn comics, right? They're not going to hold up. And hell, I mean, a year or two down the line, we're going to be told, like, hey, everything we thought we knew about that crossover you all dropped $300 on a couple of years ago was wrong anyway, right? I mean, it's... It's just a Marvel method, <laughs> and it sucks. But uh, I'm too weak to to stop supporting it. So I guess I'm you know I'm part of the problem. <laughs> so it is what it is. But uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts there, Damien. Next, uh, Andrew Franklin is talking about X Factor number one. He says I was so certain I was going to hate this comic. I thought this was going to be 100% everything I dislike about modern Marvel comics. Snarky quips, everyone speaking like a 20-something on the internet, meta-references, oh-so-wacky gags like Amazing Baby, tonal whiplash between ironic irreverence and emotionally overwrought seriousness. And while those elements are there, I didn't hate it. By the end of the book, I actually quite liked it, which was a huge surprise. And yeah, this was a pretty good issue. I can't say that it lived up to the hype that I'd given it, um, but I did have a good time with it. I was kind of walking the line with this one because I'd heard so many good things about it, so I was kind of psyched. But I also expected irreverence and millennial humor, and like you said, there is a bit of that, but certainly not to the extent that I had braced for. I was expecting it to be like... I can't even think of a millennial reference to <laughs> to say, but I was expecting it to be a difficult read, a cringy read, but uh, it was not. It was actually quite good. Uh, Andrew continues, B-list X-Men are my sweet spot, so I really like the cast. Well, those I'm familiar with. Polaris and Rachel Summers have long been favorites of mine. I'm not really sure what their characters are like nowadays, and this issue didn't do a great job of sh- really showing them to me since everyone kind of had the same voice. The little we did get, like Polaris talking to Magneto, I did like. Maybe after this setup issue, we'll have more time for characterization. And I hope so, too. Uh, This was a fine bringing the team together sort of outing. And I'm guessing characterization will follow. Uh, As a matter of fact, I'd almost bet money that before long we'll get an issue where they all go to visit Doc Samson for therapy. Because of course they will. Um, Andrew continues. I'm really, I really enjoyed the focus on Northstar. I'm not sure how prominent he's been since Eve of Destruction, the last time I remember seeing him, but I always felt he and Aurora would make solid B-list X-Men. We shouldn't hold their Alpha Flight membership against them. Him being made team leader was a nice surprise. It certainly made me interested to keep reading. And yeah, Northstar's kind of been in and out of the X-Books since uh, Eva Destruction. Uh, if Eva Destruction is what I'm thinking of, that was the temporary Pauli Prevezano team that uh, Gene put together, right? I think that's the one. Now, he would figure, uh, Northstar that is, he would figure somewhat prominently, uh, actually unfortunately prominently, during the Chuck Austin run. Uh, he was basically there to uh, be very, very gay. Um, and I was recently revisiting, uh, there's a fellow named Paul O'Brien, uh, who, if you're an X-Men fan, you should probably check out some of his writing here. Uh, 
he used to do, or he probably still does, the X-Axis, where he reviews basically every X-Men book and has done so for well over 20 years at this point. And I was revisiting his uh, X-Axis archives, uh, checking out his X-Men year and review pieces from earlier, you know, turn of the century. It's something I do probably, probably every end of the year. It's one of those rituals I have where I just, you know, check back in on some things. And I happened across his look at Uncanny X-Men from 2002. And in his piece, he summed up the year as follows. Quote, what happened in 2002? The X-Core storyline, Nightcrawler's crisis of religious faith, the Vanisher's drug-dealing empire is destroyed, Black Tom Cassidy and the Juggernaut in Scotland, Annie Gazikhanian arrives at the mansion, North Star joins, and boy is he gay. Because that was the only characterization he got. I mean, these were very different times, of course, but uh, poor Northstar just couldn't catch a break. He was only relevant in that book because he was gay, and Chuck Austin never let anyone forget that. Um, while I'm talking about the X-Axis, uh, I recommend any of Paul O'Brien's X-Men discussions to anyone listening. Um, I haven't read his current year stuff because I don't want to accidentally spoil myself on anything, but I can't say enough good things about his archives. Um, I believe he's now at like House to Astonish. I think that's the show that he's on. But uh, he, he's got a ton, a, a, a huge catalog of, uh, of excellent X-Men reviews. It's really, really good stuff. He's the guy who wrote about Mutant X. And uh, those reviews about the later issues of Mutant X, the Howard Mackey book featuring Havoc... If you haven't read those, it, it's good stuff. Definitely something worth checking out. But back to Northstar, uh, he'd later be part of the Astonishing cast, post-Joss Whedon. There, he would be rushed into a wedding storyline so that Marvel could beat DC to doing it. And uh, they could also get Whoopi Goldberg to hold the, the comic up on The View. Basically it. Uh, Andrew continues, The other team members I know nothing about. Prodigy and iBoy seem useful in the CSI Krakoa book. I liked how the team got to showcase all their abilities during this issue. It brought me back to more Tory Mondays and how you and Chris Bailey would highlight when the Strike Force did that. Just like in that book, I thought it was well illustrated why these characters make a good team, as well as giving a very basic introduction to people like me who were reading some of these characters for the very first time. This was really good first issue fundamentals. And yeah, the uh, it's funny, the Moratori powers in tandem gimmick was exactly what popped in my head when I was reading this. And you're right, this is a great way to introduce these lesser known and potentially completely unknown to some to to some readers, you know, these characters. All but Dakin or Dakin, because uh dang, they they just wouldn't stop beating the dust out of that rug. That was a little much. A little a little unsubtle. Uh, Andrew continues. I thought the art was a perfect fit for this book. I don't think this look would go as well with the violence of X-Force, and if a Lionel Francis you were drawing this, it would look far too serious for the script to work. I think the art here straddles the line, and it needs to, to make the jokiness work while also looking good for the more serious scenes. This look really helped sell the book to me. It should also be mentioned that this was a 39-page book, which probably did a lot to make this issue read so well. And yeah, this artist... Um, while he's not my favorite, uh, I will definitely say he's a better fit here than anywhere I've seen him before. I, I was not taken out of the story by his work, where in previous books, I want to say he was on FF. Uh, when when Hickman was on it, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when he split off, 
I think either Fantastic Four was canceled or was running concurrently with FF. Uh, this is where, post you know, spoiler alert, Johnny Storm's death, and Spider-Man joined up. I want to say Baldion was artist late in that run, and I did not care for it. Uh, but here, it's perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. Uh, Andrew continues. I was very surprised at how much I enjoyed X-Factor number one. I'm very much looking forward to seeing how the rest of this series goes. I'm also surprised at just how much I enjoy these Wave 2 books. Well, all except Wolverine. <laughs> Hopefully that enjoyment lasts. And yeah, Wave 2 has been quite the pleasant surprise. Um, I really wasn't sure what to expect out of books like Cable and Hellions. You know, um, I had a pretty good idea what we'd be getting out of Wolverine. And, well, yeah, that's exactly what we wound up getting. But everything else has been a very pleasant surprise. And I'm happy to say uh, 3 out of 4 ain't bad. Right, so that's a that's a good thing. Uh, Andrew wraps up with, "It's literally taken me a week to get this email out. So if you read this before Christmas, have a merry Christmas and a happy birthday. And until there's a gritty reboot of Kids Incorporated, make mine X lapsed." Well, I did get this before Christmas and before my birthday, so thank you so so much. And I hope everyone had a uh, had a wonderful Christmas as well. Uh, mine was different than usual, but uh, very very nice, very enjoyable, and uh, hated to see it end. Still do. Uh, it's Probably one of the reasons it's been such a hard few days. It's uh, you get that post-holiday blues sort of setting in, and uh, this year, I think I think so many of us, considering the rough year we had, I think we put a lot of uh, a lot of our hopes in the holiday season as a distraction or just a happy place, and uh, it definitely delivered for me. But uh, it makes the days after it. Kind of rough because the the lows kind of mirror the highs. So as great as everything was, now it's now it's not, <laughs> and it's different. But uh, thank you so so much, and uh, that's where we'll leave it for today. Still got a few messages in the hopper that hopefully, if uh, if anybody listening wrote those, please forward them to that other email address, 90sxmen at gmail.com so I can actually uh, share them on the program here. Um, I guess with that said, hey, if you'd like to write in, you could do so. You could find me at uh, Ace Comics on Twitter or at 90sXmen at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. We also have xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat with us about all sorts of stuff over on Facebook at 90sXmen. And you can check out the entire audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That'll do it for today. I want to thank everyone so, so much for hanging out and sharing your time. And as always, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 92 of X Lapsed, where, uh, for the moment, we are no longer on the path to X of Tens. Uh, I don't know how they're labeling some of these, and not others, but uh, I guess we'll just go with what they give us. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Excalibur number f- uh, Volume 4, number 11. It's had an October 2020 cover date. Story's called Blood of the Changeling, written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe. Colors Eric Arshinaga, letters VCs Ariana Marr, designs Tom Muller, head of X Hickman, edits Bisa White Zabolski, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale August 19th of 2020. And before we go on, this is uh, gonna be another one of those episodes where I got something going on in my ears, so everything I'm saying sounds very, very muffled here. I don't know if it's the mic, I don't know if it's my ears. There's something weird going on, so hopefully... I'll be able to keep my volume levels, well, level here and not uh, shout in your ears and not whisper either. So we'll hope for the best here. Let's open this one up. And we open in the woods of Otherworld, where we meet a pair of green priestesses. Now, if you're already confused, well, join the club. Now, they're talking about Shogo the Dragon and how he cries like a baby in need of his mother, because of course he does. He is a baby who would probably want to be with his mother. Next thing we see is Jubilee, who's been captured by these very same green priestesses, and she's, like, trapped inside a tree. I guess these green priestesses have arboreal powers. I don't know. Now, the priestesses ask her if she'll settle down long enough for them to talk, to which Jubilee paffs a whole bunch with her fireworks, which... Pretty much tells them everything they need to know. Then Excalibur shows up, and we get a single splash page depicting a battle between the Green Priestesses and our mutant heroes before hopping to an info page. Now we're in Otherworld, of course, and Opal Luna Saturnine has two different kinds of priestesses. We got Priestesses of the White and Priestesses of the Green. And there are some differences between the two, but... I tell you what, I tried getting through this page like a half dozen times, and my eyes glazed over each and every time here. Let's just say they're different. Uh, Single page spread of credits here, then a roll call. We'll be focusing on Gambit, Rogue, Richter, Jubilee, Apocalypse, and Betsy Britton. So we return to comics with Betsy chatting up Jubilee in a tree. I guess the battle is just over? Whatever. Uh, Now, she assures Jubilee that Shogo is okay and won't be harmed any further. Jubilee, eh, she ain't so sure. She wants these priestesses dead. And I know it's been a while, but last issue, some of Saturnine's priestesses shot Shogo down, and these were the white priestesses. Finally, the Greens decide that Jubilee might not be so much of a threat, and so they release her from her tree jail. It looks like we're on Endor or something. We got, like, tree houses and all that kind of stuff. And we see Shogo laid out on the ground, and he's really not in a good way. 
Now, Betsy comments that she'd asked Jubilee if she wanted to take Shogo back to Krakoa for healing. But here's the thing. Shogo the dragon's wound is bigger than Shogo the baby's entire body. So they're kind of concerned here, because if they take him through the gateway and he turns back into a baby, the poor thing might just fall apart or just die out the other end. The team decides to bide their time for a bit, and they're just going to remain here in the green while they plan their next moves. Betsy suggests that, you know, maybe Excalibur just stay here, hang ten, and she will head over to the Citadel all by her lonesome, which is an idea that Rogue ain't too keen on. We jump to that night, where the rest of the team is asleep, Richter begins to stir. He wanders around the woods a bit until he comes across a crystal. Now, he's beckoned to it as a druid by a pair of antlered priestesses. He reaches out and touches it, which somehow puts him in telepathic communication with A. Now, A is fairly insistent that Excalibur get back on task, get to the citadel, and plant that gateway seed. Richter tries to explain the current situation, you know, Shogo getting shot and all. He ain't too keen on it, and he decides that maybe to inspire Richter, he will share a story with him. And I tell you what, it's going to feature some folks that I never thought we'd ever hear from again. Apocalypse tells Richter of his first coven, circa 12th century C.B., I'm not sure what CB stands for other than Sobolski. Uh, I do know folks that don't care to use AD now, use CE for common era. Maybe I'm missing something. I don't know. Whatever the case, Apocalypse's old coven is the Externals. You remember them? Probably not. This is like this is like year one X-Force stuff. Very, very weird. Very, very uh, confusing and... One of those concepts that I thought would never be revisited because it was just so damn inconvenient and confusing the first time around. Anyway, we got Saline, Nicodemus, friggin' Cruel, Saul, and Kandra. I mean, like I said, we're pulling things out of Liefeld era X-Force. Anyway, Apocalypse talks about how one of them, Kandra, had a plan to extract her own life energy and place it into a stone. Because why wouldn't one want to do that? So Apocalypse and the gang help her with this, and it taught him something about rebirth and the power of a coven over that of the individual. I'm not sure why he feels like this is a story to be told here. And maybe I'm just dense, but I'm not exactly sure what Richter is supposed to glean from any of this. But whatever the case, it seems to have done the trick. Very, very bizarre. We jump to the next morning where Richter informs the team that they, you know, they got to get a move on to the Citadel. After a bit of negotiations, Jubilee will remain in Endor with Shogo. There was some conversation from Betsy to the Green Priestesses talking about how King Jamie doesn't really doesn't really seem to be concerning himself with like war. And uh, the Green Priestesses are like, well, you don't know everything that King Jamie's doing, so maybe uh, maybe a shoe is about to drop, but uh, maybe a sandal because this is not really a big shoe. Anyway, our team plans their journey, and Richter says since they can't fly there, and walking just walking up to the Citadel wouldn't be wise, they're just going to have to take the underground. Richter will dig their way there, and literally one panel later, Excalibur bursts out of the ground at the foot of the Citadel, and they're attacked pretty much straight away. Now, Richter asks for the gateway seed so he could, quote, get it started. He then causes it to grow some roots, 
which I didn't realize fell under his powers. Uh, though perhaps maybe he did some like super enrichment to the soil surrounding the seed. I don't know. I feel like maybe this is something we're not supposed to think too hard about. I, I mean, is he literally a druid now? Is Marvel trying to like break Richter into the movies so they need to like make sure he's no longer a legitimate mutant? <laughs> he's just a druid now. Who knows? Now Richter does the thing, and he hurls the root seed, cl- the rooting seed, closer to the citadel, where it does, in fact, manage to grow into a gateway. Now, while the rest of the, the crew fights off some white priestesses, Richter steps through the portal in order to get back to A. Only he winds up falling through some red limbo for a bit until he and Apocalypse are able to, I don't know, mind merge, mind link, whatever they did. Uh, I guess everything's, you know, good. We jump back to the Citadel, and Betsy and Saturnine are having themselves a chat. I'm not sure how the battle ended, which makes us two for two with this uh, wonky priestess fights just stopping rather than ending in this issue. We had the green priestesses, just the battle was a splash page. It's very similar here with the white priestesses. We don't know how they ended. Saturnine tells Betsy that she liked Brian better as Captain Britain, to which Betsy says, more or less, too bad. That's the big exchange we've been building toward here? Alright, okay. From here, we jump right to our Dawn of X reading order, and then our next issue blurb in Krakoan that we've been wasting a page on ever since the start of this thing, which may make you think we're done. But we're not. It looks like we got us a post credit scene. Hey, it's just like the movies that I hear so much about. This scene kicks off with Rogue and Gambit being, you know, kicked out of Saturnine's quarters or throne room or wherever the hell it is that she hangs out, so that she and Betsy can talk in private. Rogue guides Gambit over to Saturnine's closet so he could steal a bunch of stuff. Eh? I mean, is this supposed to be funny? Is it going somewhere? Whatever the case, we actually wrap up the issue with Gambit looting a closet, finding a deck of cards and a shiny red amulet, and... That's it. That is Excalibur number 11. Uh, Next episode, we will be talking about Wolverine number 4, so, uh, vampires. Yay. Uh, But before we do that, let's talk about this wildly disjointed issue. Um, I gotta say, this felt like just a bunch of incomplete scenes jammed together. Like, none of them actually led to a conclusive beat. Two whole battles with the priestesses that just stopped. It's like, are those pages in another book? Did they fall out of my copy? I mean, it's... And it's a strangely clean stop as well. Like, you turn the page and we're on to the next thing. Without wrapping up what came before. Very, very bizarre. Very unfinished feeling. Uh, Now, Apocalypse's story about the externals also just seemed to stop. And, again, I might be dense, but I'm struggling to realize exactly what the point of it was. Though this might just be one of those, like, things where this would make a whole lot more sense if I was reading it in trade paperback format sort of thing, which, hey, I mean, that's great for people who are doing that, but what about the rest of us, right? And I mean, even the anthology, the Dawn of X anthology books, you're just getting a single issue of Excalibur in there. What are you even building to? Very, very bizarre. Now, the ending scene with Rogan Gambit... Just like the rest of the book, very disjointed It almost feels like it was part of a different book altogether It's so very strange here And it's, it like almost reminds me While it's, you know, fresh in my mind here During Mary X last week 
we took a look at the final issue from Chris Claremont's return, uh, you know, in 2001-ish. And he had a bunch of things he needed to fit in, and he did it, damn it. (laughs) It didn't matter how awkward it felt, how weirdly it read, he was going to jam everything in there that he could, because he had to. Is that what we're getting here? I mean, I can't say for sure, but it sure feels like it. We're just cramming and rushing here, and uh, they really could have paced this better. Uh, it just wasn't it just wasn't a satisfying read. It did look nice. I'll give it that all day long. And you know what? The story itself isn't a bad one. I thought the dialogue was really good as well. My main issue here is the pacing. And it's like we're devoting too much paginal real estate to things that may not need it while at the same time we're awkwardly truncating scenes that might be better off with just a little bit more room to breathe. So, that is Excalibur number 11. Next issue of Excalibur is one of the X of Ten's prelude chapters, not even the Path 2. This is like a prelude, an official one. So hopefully, business will pick up by then. But that's all I got to say about the issue. Let's hop into the mailbag. We're going to kick it off with Damien, who finished Empire colon X-Men here, so we're going to get his final thoughts on this fourth issue. He says, well, that was the best issue of the series, which may be damning with faint praise. As you said, the scene between the two Explody Boys was the best part of the issue. Explody Boy feels like an attempt to come up with a superhero name that a teenager would pick. Sadly, it doesn't really work, and ends up reflecting Bob Haney's use of teenage slang in those old Teen Titans issues. It's painful. Yeah, totally. Um, very good comparison there. I, I it, it does feel like, you know, I would talk about um, Chris Claremont using, uh, trying to use slang of the day, or actually trying to use slang of yesterday, because he wasn't on top of what was hip, I guess, for a lack of a better term. I, I don't think I've ever used the word hip in real life, but uh, here we are. He would use things from, like, a generation past because he thought that was still relevant. Like, when I look at something like Explody Boy, it reminds me of those... That boom of movies we had, probably mid to late 2000s, where they were, like, big-budget movies, but they were trying to make it look like indie. So they'd use, like, that bubble lettering, and it would look like something you drew on your traffic keeper, right? That's kind of what this feels like, because it's kind of ironic, it's kind of silly, and it's it feels... It feels horribly dated, unless I'm just not hip, and this is exactly what the the youth of the day would really, really dig, in which case I I concede I'm I'm out of touch. But uh, it felt instantly dated to me and just very, very cringy. Perhaps not as cringy as uh, Chris Claremont having a character in Sovereign 7 tell Lois Lane to, quote, strike a pose, which came out in, like, Probably 1997, referencing a Madonna song from quite a bit before that, but uh, silliness. Um, Damien continues, Jonathan Hickman is not funny. He needs telling. The Madrox scene doesn't work as humor, and it doesn't work as drama. It's really distasteful. And I'm so happy to hear you say that, because, um, I mean, we've talked about the humor in these books and how they're, how it doesn't always land. But, uh... And I've talked about this before, but anytime I make a complaint about basically anything Jonathan Hickman does, there's a contingent that tells me that I just don't get it. 
And, and, you know, they might be right. Like, maybe Explody Boy and Jamie Madrox offering up dupe body parts to be eaten by zombies is the height of hilarity. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I just don't get it. But that's what I keep hearing from folks. I keep hearing, like, oh, this is just Hickman style. You either get it or you don't. Well, I don't. <laughs> and uh, I don't find it funny. I think he's a good writer. I just don't think he's a very funny writer. Uh, I think he's trying too hard to be funny. Um, and again, I'm I'm completely projecting here. I've never met the man. I probably never will. But uh, it just feels like very try-hard sort of stuff here. Jamie Madrox, a guy who back in the early 90s couldn't reabsorb a dupe and it sent him spiraling into depression, you know, because he lost one. And here we are where he's just stacking, he's stacking arms for zombies to eat so he can get away. Really bad. It's not funny. It's not scary. It's not anything. It's just, it's crap. Uh, Damien wraps up with, in conclusion, I will never read this series again, but I think you're slightly unfair to it saying it's worse than Fallen Angels. (laughs) It's a close one. It's a close one, but gun to my head, if I have to read one of these over again, it's Fallen Angels, because at least it's quick. Um, (laughs) and, uh, And I mean, it's, I can make fun of that, where Empire is just brutal. It is brutal. I will. I will never take these out of the packs again. Out of the uh, out of the poly bags, they are sealed for life. I could stitch these things shut because they're never coming out again. Fallen Angels. It's not likely I'll ever read it again. But like I said, gun to my head, if I had to pick one, I'm reading Fallen Angels twice. Uh, but thank you so much for uh, for sharing your thoughts there, Damien, and thank you for keeping up with Empire X Men. I know it's. I know it wasn't a pleasant read, and I'm sure it wasn't a completely pleasant listen as well. So I thank you so, so much. Now next, we have uh, we have a message from Mark, Green Lantern HG, talking about Giant Size Phantom X. He says, Great episode, Chris. This character I know nothing about. This came way after I stopped reading X Anything, and talking to a friend, he said the same thing you said. He told me to, quote, Imagine Gambit, but with different powers and a mask. I love hearing that because, and I mentioned this too, Mark, uh, on Twitter, that I thought that I might have to give up my my Grant Morrison fan club card, you know, for daring to compare uh, one of his genius characters to Gambit, who, you know, a lot of us more enlightened uh, comics uh, enthusiasts would uh, discount as just a a relic of the 90s who doesn't ever need to be seen again. so I was worried that people might take me to task for that. But, I mean, there are a lot of similarities between the two. It's hard to stop seeing them once you start. So I want to thank you so, so much for writing in about that and for uh, keeping up with uh, the show. It uh, really, really means a lot to me. Next, uh, Evan Bevins shares a story about a story that I told back in x episode 63. Now, Evan says, I listened to the episode Excalibur 8, X-Lab 63, I believe, where you talked about your comics college class and the guest lecturers, and I wanted to share my own, quote, academic comic experience. Though I took sports and film and science fiction literature, I never got a full-on comics-focused course, but there was an inexplicable entry on comics in my journalism ethics textbook. It talked about the state of comics at the time it was written, which was the mid to late 90s based on perusing a grocery or drugstore spinner rack. 
I believe one of the, quote, concerns it cited was something like Lady Death or Evil Ernie, some title I didn't know much about and wasn't interested in learning. But it continued to question the ever-rising stakes and threats that resulted in the approach of Onslaught. And I agree that there could be a problem with continuing to raise the threat level to absurd, absurd heights, but if this writer was morally concerned about Onslaught, I hope he or she never perused Irredeemable or The Boys. And the arrival of the of a new team, the Justice League of America, which referenced Morrison's JLA number one, quote, just to prove that jingoism is alive and well. I did ma- I did try to make the point in class that the most pertinent connection this class this had to the class was that clearly the writer had not done enough or any research to accurately explore the topic about which they were writing. The idea of attaching America to a team's name had been explored numerous times before that, including when the Justice League title shifted to international and when they introduced Justice League Europe. The inclusion of the name was, as I understood it, a legacy from the JSA, which was born from World War II patriotism. Of course, there are numerous things about that era that didn't age well, but that wasn't one of them. I believe I asked for equal time to rebut, but was sadly turned down by the professor. Now, first, I want to thank Evan so much for uh, for writing in about this. Uh, for folks who don't remember this episode or who are just popping around the uh, the feed here, I discussed a comic. A what was it? A Western literature class I was in with a focus on comic books that I needed as a humanities course while still in community college. And the discussion that we had, uh, we had guest lecturers who told us they were PhDs about 7,000 times in a half-hour talk. Um, and what they did was they talked about representation in comics, among other things, of course. What they really wanted to do was um, kind of... They wanted to present comics as being racially ignorant. Um, but in doing so, they didn't take the time to... Like Evan said, they didn't do much, if any, research on creators, on the state of the industry for the books they were citing the risks involved in presenting anything different than, you know, what the people were reading at the time, and nothing about the actual attempts at diversifying the business both on the page and off, um, because, I mean, at the end of the day, they had a narrative. They had a narrative they wanted to present, and uh, on the face of it, I mean, when you say things, when you make blanket statements about a very niche subject like comics or any hobby, really, the layman in the crowd, or as John Byrne would call them, the civilian, you know, the people who don't know comics inside or out, they're going to just accept it. They're going to be like, oh, well, that makes sense, right? You know, oh, Justice League of America? Yeah, Jingoism. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because they don't know anything about the history or the industry or anything like that. But when you put someone like us in a room with these folks... It doesn't uh, it doesn't pass muster, but unfortunately, there's just not a whole hell of a lot you can do. You know, you're not going to say anything that's going to make them change their outlook. They're certainly not going to start researching. <laughs> if they haven't already, they're not going to start. So it's uh, they got their story and they're sticking to it. So hey, it just it stinks. But uh, I really love hearing uh, Evan's uh, Evan's experience because it's. I'm starting to think that this might be a uh, a common experience for folks who who you know had the pleasure and pain of hearing a little bit about you know their favorite hobby in an academic environment. Now we're going to wrap up with a message from Andrew Franklin, who's talking about cable number two. 
He says, these Wave 2 books keep on surprising me with how much I enjoy them. Well, except for Wolverine, and yeah... (laughs) I agree. Uh, He continues, Cable is a title I had no interest in. I have little interest in OG Cable solo series, much less a Teen Cable. I thought Teen Cable was a dumb idea, and his depiction in the Dawn of X titles wasn't exactly changing my mind, but this book is fun. I look forward to seeing where this goes. I know space stuff isn't your cup of tea, but I like the inclusion of the ROM stuff. It shouldn't work, but somehow this book does. I hope the next few issues just ramp up the crazy heavy metalness. And yeah, I like I said, I'm not big on ROM. I've got a full run of ROM that I found in a quarter bin and uh, never read it. I've tried reading it. I uh, didn't try too hard. Uh, you know, I, honestly, I didn't. I could have tried harder, but I didn't really try too hard. But what I did see, I, I really wasn't too keen on. Uh, that said. I'm a I'm a sucker for lore, so I love the idea of tying these things together. Just like uh, you know, when they introduced like a Deathlock into uh, Uncanny X Force, I could care less about Deathlock, but I love the the use, just the the lore, the interconnectivity of things. I like that sort of thing, and I like it here. And like you said, this shouldn't work, but it does. It really, really shouldn't work because it's just. It's quite insane, right? I mean, everything that we're seeing in this book is very, very crazy. Who would ever think that a, a teenage cable would uh, be able to maintain a series or maintain interest to uh, in a solo adventure? I didn't think so. I mean, like you said, the old cable could barely do that. This teen cable, I, I wasn't happy that he was even a thing that existed. And here we are, really, really enjoying the run. So... Really, really digging it. And I want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts as well. Uh, Andrew does wrap up with, Until the dire wraiths return in Empire 2, the returning Make Mine X Lapsed. I will always read the Make Mine X Lapsed. I love them. I love them. Thank you so much for that. Um, but that is where we will leave it for today. If anyone out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so a couple of different ways. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or at Gmail at 90sXmen at gmail.com like I mentioned last episode I lost access to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com which sucks for a lot of reasons and is literally something I'm losing sleep over so uh, not happy about that hopefully I'll be able to get back in there soon but for now 90sxmen at gmail.com is the contact address for this program uh, you could uh, check out blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. We've also got xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You could talk about all sorts of stuff on Facebook. If Facebook is a thing that you do, find us at 90s X-Men. And you can listen to the entire audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You know, I've done those plugs 92 times now, and I still stumble through them. I should just tape something and, and put it there, but... uh. I figure that's probably a, a, something a smart person would do, but I'll just keep stumbling through as we uh, as we continue. But uh, I think that'll do it. I want to thank everyone so, so much for sharing their time with me and uh, for sharing their thoughts as well. Uh, next time out, it is Wolverine number four. Hopefully we'll be pleasantly surprised by that one, but I'm not holding my breath. Uh, <laughs> I want to thank you all again. And as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 105 of X Lapsed. And uh, if you stand next to me and you look toward the horizon, you'll see something. You're going to see Exatens. And if you were to look down, you'll see that we're on a path. On a path straight to the horizon here. The path to X of Tens. And, you know, these path two books have been, I don't know, kind of middling, kind of uh, nebulous in how much they're actually informing the mass crossover event that we're about to hit and hit hard. So we'll see how this one goes. We're going to be talking about an issue of X-Force here that picks up from, well, the last issue of X-Force, which was also branded as being part of the path to X of Tens. So without any further ado, let's get right into it here. This is X-Force, Volume 6, Number 12, which had a November 2020 cover date. The story is called The Cerebro Sword. Written by Benjamin Percy with art by Oscar Bazaldua, one of those. Colors, Guru EFX, letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna, designs are Tom Muller, head of X is Hickman, edits, Robinson, Amaro, White, Basso, Sobolski, cover price $3.99, and this issue went on sale 9-9 of 2020. Now we pick up basically right where we left off here, Mikhail Rasputin, Colossus and Magic's brother, he's got the Cerebro Sword, and also a dying Quentin choir laying at his feet, because Quentin dies all the time. Quentin, still alive now, he asks why Mikhail would choose his country, Russia, over his people, the mutants. To which Mikhail proclaims that he is Russia. Okay, then. He decides to drag Quentin's just-about-to-die body along with him to wherever he's going, and uh, we'll find out in just a little bit. First, let's do a roll call. Beast, Sage, Cecilia Reyes, who I don't think we see in this issue, Colossus, Domino, Kid Omega, and Mikhail Rasputin. From here, a double-page spread of creds, then back to comics. And we're at the point with Beast and Sage. Sage had been KO'd or something, I can't remember, in the last issue. Whatever the case, she's a bit out of it. And so Beast hands over this, like, gross, organic Krakoan helmet to help her, you know, keep her head straight. Kind of like that thing that Domino has, that gun that adapts to whatever. It's like that weird, organic nastiness. So Sage puts the helmet on, does her thing, and whatever whatever it is that her thing is, and she's quickly able to deduce the source of this latest threat. And it's Mikhail. Duh. From here, we shift scenes back to the uh, Court of Owls. It's been a while since we've seen these geeks. Uh, this is, of course, if you're listening, you know this is Zeno or Zeno. Uh, they're the ones behind making all those domino dupes earlier in this very volume. They're having their normal blustery meeting, which is interrupted by the arrival of Mikhail Rasputin. Uh, Mikhail and one of the heavies of Zeno get into it right away. Jump back to Krakoa, where Beast and Black Tom are doing a little bit of, I don't know, ethnic profiling? You see, Mikhail Rasputin is Russian, right? But he's not the only Russian mutant that they know, so uh, it's time to chat some more of them up. Starting with Omega Red, who... Um, I thought he was busy hanging out with Dracula or something. I mean, in fairness, it's not as though Ben Percy is writing both of those books. Oh, oh, wait a minute. That's right, he is. Anyway, Black Tom, 
black toms, some Krakoan vines, into tangling up poor innocent Arcady. And I suppose we're heading for an inquisition of sorts. But first, back to Zeno. Zeno, whatever. Mikhail and the Heavy keep fighting, and he makes it clear to them that he sees Krakoa as an enemy, and so they've got that in common. After some more tussling, Mikhail draws the Cerebro sword and holds it at the Zeno leader's throat. His name escapes me right now, and uh, frankly, he's not interesting enough to do a whole lot of research on, so we'll just call him the Zeno leader for the moment. We shift scenes over to the Savage Land. There we see Colossus and his new friend Kayla. They're talking about farming and whatnot, and uh, boredom, and how Colossus thinks that boredom, you know, when his li- when a life is as chaotic as his normally is, boredom is something of a relief, something to look forward to, something to aspire towards. Well, suddenly, the boredom is shattered because Beast arrives, also the rest of X-Force. Now, they're here to interrogate Colossus about his potential ties to Russia and his brother Mikhail, who apparently are one and the same. Makes me wonder, are they going to round up magic, too? I mean, probably not, since he's featured in about 80% of these Dawn of X books. Not that we're all that worried about maintaining the linear integrity of the Shared X universe at this point, but what are you going to do? Now, Colossus appears to be going willingly. He's fine with it. He's like... Yeah, sure, I'll go with you. Well, I'll answer some questions. But his new friend Kayla ain't having it. She uses her hydro powers to blast X-Force until Peter asks her to stand down. Oh, and Domino uh, draws her pistol and holds it up to Kayla's forehead. Which, uh, tell you what, I mean, you know, when you think about things like being heroic, sometimes you don't know it till you see it, right? And that's, you know, holding a pistol up to a unarmed person's head Nothing screams hero like that, right? Now, Beast asks, as a favor to him, if Peter would mind uh, wearing handcuffs back to Krakoa. Yeah, really, he wants Peter cuffed as they walk through the gateway here. Peter's fine with it. He is like, he seems completely defeated, dejected. He just doesn't appear to care about a whole lot at the moment. Now, he's walked through the gateway, and then upon arrival on Krakoa, he is faced with, like, several dozen mutants, including Outlaw from Agent X. Somebody in the X office really seems to have, a f- have fond memories of Agent friggin' X. And, I mean, it wasn't that good. Uh-huh. From here, an info page. And it's a long one, taken from Beast's logbook. Something about traitors that uh, I couldn't get through without glazing over. These are very long. Back to comics. And Wolverine, who was part of this mission, is really ticked off at the show that Beast is putting on here, right? He's basically trotting their friend Peter out in front of all these mutants. You know, guilty until proven innocent at this point. Wolverine rightly socks Beast in the gut and then chases the audience away with his claws drawn. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Shift scenes over to Zeno. Mikhail and the big bad chat for a bit as they walk through the body shop thing. It's You remember what happened with Domino, right? What we got here is a bunch of fluid-filled canisters, each containing a body, nothing we haven't seen before. Now, Mikhail knows what Zeno was able to do with just a little bit of Domino, and he wonders what they might be able to accomplish if they could do the same thing with Kid Omega. And, uh, I mean, shouldn't Zeno, like, already want to do that sort of thing? Like, like they shouldn't need this sort of prompting, is what I'm trying to say. Are they really this stupid? They never thought, like... Like Zeno standing there, hey, you know, if duping Domino worked so well, and she's just a, like a, an assassin with luck powers, why not try doing the same thing with an Omega-level mutant? 
Because, as luck would have it, there just so happens to be an Omega-level mutant who dies every 15 minutes. Right? Oh well. Let's jump back to Krakoa for the wrap-up. Now, Wolverine has invited Jean Grey to the point to ask her for some help. Now, even though she quit X-Force, they still need her for this very special exercise. They need her to try and get into the heads of Colossus and Omega Red to see what they know. Maybe they'll find out about that pesky Dracula while she's in there. But that's it for comics. We do have another very long info page, which is signed in Russian, and I'm bored with this, so I'm not going to read it. That is X-Force number 12. Next episode, it's one of our X of Tens part zeros, a prelude. It's Excalibur number 12. But let's talk about uh, what we got here, huh? I gotta say, this was pretty weak. I mean, stuff happened, right? But was it the kind of stuff we really want to see happen? Do we want to see Beast profiling Russian characters to round up in question? Especially when we're including one of his longest tenured teammates, and I would figure his one of his closest friends in the team. Is that really where we are now? And, like, nobody thinks to second-guess Beast's methods here. Now, I didn't go through specific names for that group shot. You know, when they were walked back through from the Savage Land to Krakoa, I said there were dozens of mutants there. Let's parse that a little bit. Let's look at that group shot here. If, uh, if you got it handy, great. If not, I'll walk you through it. Now, the group of Krakoans that Beast assembled in order to frog-march Colossus in front of included Storm. Banshee, Angel, Jubilee, Nightcrawler. You mean to tell me that none of these characters would have said, you know, Hey, Hank, this is uncool. Maybe don't do this. Also, you mean to tell me that Wolverine, with his friggin' claws out, chases this group of looky-loos away? Which, again, features some of his closest friends in Storm, Nightcrawler, and Juba friggin' Lee. Who are these characters? Did Mark Miller ghostwrite this issue? Uh, not a good look, and unfortunately for this outing, not a good book. Part of me wonders if this is like a none-too-subtle commentary on the CIA, considering, lest we forget, that X-Force is the mutant CIA, right? Now, do we even need to talk about how Omega Red is being prominently featured in two books during the same month, written by the same guy, and serving two very different purposes? Do we need to? Probably not, but we will. I mean, yeah, we can stick that Wolverine vampire story anywhere to make it fit, right? I mean, it's just a story. It could go wherever the hell we want it to go. But that doesn't excuse the laziness or the lack of editorial direction for using the same villain in two different books at the same time in the real world here. I mean, these are both books that are coming out within weeks of each other or days of each other. Did the Omega Red Dracula story have to happen now? Probably not, considering that the entire Wolverine book is basically one-off filler stories stretched out to as many issues as they can decompress them into. What are the editors even doing here? I don't get it. How about we talk about Domino pressing her pistol up to Kayla's head? Yeah, that seems in character, doesn't it? You know, some of these scenes feel like they're written by an 11-year-old who just discovered Watchmen and totally missed the point of it. Heroes shouldn't be pressing their guns into people's heads as a first resort, especially when they're unarmed. And, I mean, 
this is just a young, lovesick mutant girl who wants the best for Colossus here, and we're gonna we're gonna jam a gun into her head. Sure, I mean it gives you an edgy few panels because that's very important, but at the cost of characterization and emotional investment. My takeaways upon seeing the scene aren't, wow, Domino's a badass, which I feel like they were supposed to be. They're more, wow, Domino's an asshole, because at least in this scene, she is. I don't know what they're thinking with this stuff. Is the mission statement of this book, or this issue in particular, to make every character that we love as as awful as possible? Do they want us to not care about these characters? Is... Is this more evidence that there's some tweaking going on behind the scenes here? I just don't understand it because it's I'm coming away from this issue not liking anybody. And uh, I don't know if that's what you should be aspiring towards uh, when you're putting out a team book. To make every single character someone you don't care about. Someone you're not invested in. I really just don't know. Um, not a big fan of this one, which is a shame because... Uh, I mean, X-Force has been hit or miss with me personally since since Jump Street. The thing of it is, it's not just like a mild hit or, hit or miss book. It's like either a home run or this. You know, we get some really, really solid issues of this book. But then when they're not that great, in my opinion, of course, they're aggressively not great. And uh, I think that's kind of what we're, where we're at for this issue here, at least for me personally. And, I mean, your mileage may vary, and hopefully, for your sake, it does. But uh, I didn't come away with this from this one all that pleased. Um, part of me is hoping that I just misread a lot of this. But if it is what it appears to be, it's not a good look. It's not a good look, and it's a hard, it's a hard thing to walk back, right? If we're... If Beast really is rounding up people for questioning, I mean, what what does that even say? Uh, it's I, I don't know if this is just a role reversal with this, you know, things that the mutants had to deal with over the years. Now it's now they're evoking it on themselves. It's I don't know, just uh, not a fan of this issue. Not a fan of this issue, and uh, that's all I got to say about it. So uh, let's head into the mailbag here before we cut out. Uh, we're going to hear from Damien first. He's talking about Cable number 3. He says, I have very little to say about this issue because it was fun. What more can you say? I do slightly worry that Jerry Duggan is having so much fun in the margins that we can lose sight of the overall picture. When the baby turned up at the end, I'd forgotten that that story started with a kidnap. But it's fun nonetheless. And you're right. You're right. I I also forgot that we were dealing with... Uh, what is her... I never remember her name. I know it's Pauly and uh, Stinger. I think it's Stinger. Yeah, their child was kidnapped by the Order of X, folks. And I I totally spaced it, too. But I was having so much fun with everything else, I didn't even realize it. But uh, really fun issue. You're right. Dead on. This is a fun issue. And part of me wonders if... Maybe the COVID hiatus had something to do with um, the story kind of going the way it's going here. Because we had to get to Exit 10s, of course, so we kind of have to get the Space Knight stuff out of the way. And we see, as we get further into the series here with uh, Issue 4, the baby, uh, the baby subplot, or the baby plot, has become a subplot. Kind of just something that's ticking away in the background while everything else goes on ahead of it. But you're right, there is a risk there of uh, 
as you put it, having having too much fun in the margins. But when the fun is is this much fun, I'm okay with that. <laughs> Damien continues. It was really interesting to hear you contrast my feedback on Marauders number eleven with Jesse's. Everything that Jesse said is correct. Kitty should have had a Jewish funeral, and it should have been attended by more people. There is no doubt. What is evident from Marauders 12 is that far more people attend Kitty's resurrection than her funeral. This could, in part, answer some of Jesse's gripes. The Krakoans clearly see resurrection as more important than death. Maybe we could understand people who have died and been resurrected not wanting to acknowledge death, but it's still weird that so few turned up. Still loving your podcast? Thanks again for all your hard work. Well, thank you so much. And uh, talking about Marauders number 11 here, a very, uh, very interesting issue. Like, the more I think about it, and the more I I go through feedback on that issue, it's, uh, I wasn't expecting it to be quite as divisive. And I also, I I was kind of expecting it just to be an issue that came and went, right? Because it starts with the funeral and it ends with Kitty coming back to life. It felt like a, a bridging sort of an issue where it's like, okay, we have some stuff we got to get done that we haven't gotten done yet, so let's get it done all right here. I figured it was just a bridging issue. Then again, I also thought Kitty was going to play a much bigger role in X of Tens, and I thought this was like, hey, we got to get we got to get her back to life. We got to do this. But uh, I didn't think it was going to be something that we'd actually stop and ponder on, and it's turned out to be one of the more discussed uh, issues that we've covered here. And I, and I love it for that. I love it for that because there are so many different points of view to take with it. As far as Marauders number 12 is concerned, well, if you're listening to these in order, by now you've probably heard my thoughts on Marauders number 12 and uh, how I really didn't so much care for it. It wasn't quite what I was expecting it to be, and it kind of broke my heart not to like it as much as I felt I I would have going in. But you are also right. The Krakoans do see resurrection as a as more, I don't know, ceremonial is the word, but as something to acknowledge, uh, rather than death, because death is temporary in this world, and, uh, and I guess it's just kind of a bummer. Or, you know, the Agent X showed up, though, so at least there was that. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us, Damien. Uh, next up, we've got Jody Yurden, who's talking about X-Factor number three. He says, here's a comment on X-Factor number three. Too many times I mean to comment and then forget, because I usually listen at work. Well, don't worry about it. It's all good. It's all good. J- Jody continues. It wasn't until this very issue that I realized that my enjoyment of Mojo in the Mojoverse, shocking, I know, wasn't Mojo. It was different elements surrounding him. Longshot and Dazzler, even the X-Babies, them I like. Mojo? He sucks, and he sucks bad. And so does this story. <laughs> here, here. <laughs> while, I didn't, while I didn't hate X-Factor number three quite as much as I did X-Factor number two, it's still very much a story that isn't for me. And we've talked about Mojo. Jody and I have talked about Mojo before in the Mojoverse, uh, talking about... Like that uh, two-part story right before Jim Lee left in 1992 or 1991, um, where where the the X-Men go to Mojo the Mojo verse, and we find out Dazzler is pregnant, maybe, and they think maybe it's Shatterstar, but it's it's not. It's even more complicated than that, in fact. But uh, but we've talked about that before, and uh, Mojo Mojo's a weird character. Mojo is, I feel like he's a character that you either absolutely love or you absolutely hate. There's very little in between with with a character like Mojo. 
and uh yeah he he, he kind of does he does kind of suck and uh yeah the story does as well but uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there jody next up our friend evan bevins with a theory now he says Back listening to the feedback from Empire X-Men number one, and I remembered another hot, well, lukewarm take that I somehow managed not to share with the group. But I won't deprive you any longer. Please note the sarcasm. I have no illusions here, but I do enjoy a forum to toss ideas out in. On the, on the inconsistency with X-23 and X-Men number five, sure, X-Factor number one says that the five need proof of death before they'll resurrect anyone, but does that apply if Professor X says he needs another X-23 for a special mission? If memory serves, and it seldom does, Sync was sent along for some redundancy. Sorry if that term gives you Empire flashbacks. Uh, if Charles thought X-23 in Wolverine mindset was the best mutant for the job, he didn't want to wait for her to get out of her fallen angels Quanon is my Yoda funk. He could just make a new one. That extent of manipulation hasn't been so overt in anything I've read so far, but we've all been wondering exactly how far it goes. Another interesting theory. Another interesting theory here. We talked a bit about how issue five of X-Men, where we have, uh, what is it, Darwin, Sink, and X-23 going into the vault, where the children of the vault are, and they disappear. And we don't know if they live or die, but... That story ignores everything that happened throughout the entire run of Fallen Angels, where X-23 was very much, I don't want to say a sidekick to Quanon, but she joined up with Quanon to shed her Wolverine Jr. sort of vibe, right? She didn't want to be in Wolverine's shadow anymore. She wanted to be her own person. And here we are in X-Men Volume 5, Number 5, and she's back in her Wolverine duds. Is it the same character? Maybe not. Maybe Xavier did need a more Wolverine-y version instead of an emo Quanani version of X-23. We don't know. We don't know. And we don't know how deep the uh, the vaults under Krakoa go. <laughs> there might be different versions of different characters down there for all we know. I, and something tells me, I mean, Maybe not exactly this, but when we do get the reveal, I think it's going to just knock our socks off here. I don't know if it's going to be this, but it's going to be something. It's going to be something. I don't think it's going to be a whimper. I think it's going to be a boom, and uh, I don't know if we're going to be ready for it. But that is very, very interesting here. And to play on that a little bit more here, we've recently covered uh, the first arc of Hellions, right? Where Madeline Pryor... Goes through her existential crisis She doesn't know if she exists She just wants to be remembered And as she lay dying She just asks that Alex Havoc remembers her Remembers that she was real Remembers that she existed And then we jump ahead a few pages And we're at uh, we're back in Krakoa And the Quiet Council have to pass a ruling On whether or not they're going to Resurrect the Goblin Queen Madeline Pryor And they decide not to because she's a clone and a complication. We haven't seen X-23 die yet. But if she does, is she going to be given that same sort of treatment as Madeline Pryor? She is a clone, right? She's she's made of Wolverine genes, right? Is she a redundancy? Is she a an inconvenience or will they uh will they be okay with that? And if so, because, I mean, everybody's going to die in this damn book. 
If that does happen, does Alex have a right to come back and be like, whoa, 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 you'll let Madeline die. You're not going to bring her back, but we'll bring back X-23. I think that could be a very interesting story should it, you know, actually play out that way. But not saying it will, not saying it won't, but it's definitely interesting food for thought, at least at least in my opinion. But thank you so much for sharing that hot take with us, Evan. They're always so much fun to read, and they're always so much fun to think about and ponder. So thank you. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a message from our friend Jesse DeYoung, who I've been calling DeJong since, like, day one. So I apologize for mispronouncing your name every single time. I could barely pronounce my own name, so I apologize. Now, Jesse is talking about Marauders number 12. And he says, I've cooled off since issue 11, where I wanted to burn the comic. In Marauders number 12, for about half an issue, I felt like we had our kitty back. She looked and acted like Kitty Pride. Kurt gave her a necklace back. I was thrilled with the issue. Then she drank from a bottle, slapped on her pirate duds, and got knuckle tats again. I think I'm okay with where Kate is at. I don't like it, but I'm okay with it. This is the direction this creative team wants her to go, and eventually things will go back to the way they were. It's comics anyway, and if you can bet on anything, it's that things always go back to where they were. And yes, you're right. I'm, I'm sure the next head of X or plot master of X or whatever they're going to call the next, the next uh, curator of, these, uh, of this family of books will probably overcorrect, if, if overcorrect's even the right way to put it here, but they'll, they'll swing the pendulum back and we'll get something far more traditional because I don't think we can get much less traditional than what we're getting now. Uh, Jesse continues, Is this the first time we've seen Kitty kiss another woman? I know it's been floated for decades now that Kitty was gay, but this may be the first real time she's acted on it so blatantly. Not sure what to think about her seeing Rachel and Ileana at the party and her reactions to them both. Will there be a Twilight slash Hunger Games choice to be, to be made here? Or is she going to meet another woman named Patricia, since that name, Pete Peter, is what she's into as well? She really seemed to be affected when she turned back and saw Rachel was gone. And you know, I, I don't know that I'd ever heard that rumor. Um, I mean, being on Usenet back in the 90s, you'd hear rumors about a lot of different mutants. You know, Iceman was a big one back then, Shatterstar and Richter. Don't know that I ever heard Kitty's name bandied about, at least back then, um, probably because she was uh, with Pete Wisdom at the time. And... Uh, and I think anything that uh, Warren Ellis put to paper was considered the uh, the holiest of gospels. So no one was going to speak out against that. But uh, I don't remember that, and I don't know where this might be headed. It that is, of course, if it's headed anywhere at all. Jesse continues again. The first half of this book with the party and the horseback riding was a breath of fresh air. I didn't even mind the kiss with the tattoo artist at the end. I just don't like Kate being the baddest mother. Shut your mouth, pirate around. <laughs> But it feels like that's how every uh, mutant in Krakoa feels about themselves right now. This was an improvement over the last issue, even if she still is getting tats while wearing the Star of David. And, you know, that actually reminds me that I wanted to do a little bit of uh, research here. And I I try to stay away from comics commentary sites because I, I, I feel like they, they get pretty precious. But I did want to look into seeing if anyone had any sort of... Uh, had any sort of thoughts or problems with uh, Kitty getting tattooed here for the reasons that we've covered throughout this run so far. I haven't actually done the research. I, I keep meaning to, and eventually I will, I, I hope. But I haven't done it yet, but I am interested in seeing more reactions to this. Uh, I haven't 
actually read anything from like the Jewish point of view, just to see where people are where people are on this. And I am very very interested. Now Jesse wraps up with, so until we get bat lapsed, make mine x lapsed. Just kidding, but I would still love a bat lapsed. And uh, well, there might be there might be discussions. There might be uh, discussions going on right as we speak about uh, bat lapsed. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know me. I like spreading myself just as thin as I can. Um, if and when bat lapsed does happen, it won't be daily. I can tell you that much. But uh, I'm interested. I am interested in catching up with. Because uh, it's funny because I actually stopped reading the Batman books around the same time I stopped reading the X Men books. The only difference is I kept buying all of the Bat books, or both of the Bat books, I should say, Batman and Detective, because for some reason, I, I, I mean, I, I guess I can hazard a guess as to some of the reasons, but uh, for some reason, the Batman books ever since uh, 2011 or so, they're pretty spendy if you don't get them right off the racks. Those go up in price, those go up in value, I don't know why. They're not like they're any less plentiful, and it seems like a we're, we're we're pumping air into a bubble here with these bat books. But I never wanted to be in a position where I would have to spend, you know, upwards of ten dollars for an issue of Batman, right? And so I figure it's easier just to keep buying the things, even if uh, I don't have much interest in reading them at that moment. I always come back. That's my problem. I I'll I'll stay away for a little while, but I always come back, and I'm sure at some point. I'll want to binge all the Bat books that I've missed since, you know, since Rebirth, right? And Bat Lapsed might just be the way that we get that done. But uh, we'll put a pin in that, because <laughs> uh, who knows if it'll happen. It's just uh, in the preliminary stages right now. I'd have to figure out all sorts of artwork and all sorts of stuff for that. So it's there. It's just not here yet. But uh, that'll do it for the mailbag here. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so a couple different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Or you can leave a comment on chrisoninfiniteearths.com, where you can also find blog posts and show notes. We're very, very close to five years of daily posts over at Chris's on Infinite Earth. So I'm not sure if I'm going to do anything special for that, but uh, hey, it's there. Uh, you can also check out xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, and you can come to our little Facebook group and talk about all the stuff, any stuff, everything. It's 90s X-Men on Facebook. You can also check out the Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And I think that's where we'll leave it for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for hanging out with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 106 of X-Lapsed, where we're uh, kind of off the path to Exosords, and we're uh, into one of the prelude issues here. Not to say we're not going to go back on the path, because I think we might, but this is a prelude issue. So we get two of these, so this is kind of like the first half of part zero to the massive crossover event that we'll be spending... Well, an entire month on. <laughs> very, 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 very soon. Uh, let's start this one. This is Excalibur, uh, by the way. Uh, we're going to talk about the cover here because I knew that the cover featured Saturnine playing chess and then someone playing chess with her. But every time I looked at it, I could have sworn it was Emma Frost. Uh, they look too damn similar. Um, they uh, There's really not a whole lot to tell them apart by if you look at them quickly. So... This entire time we're getting to this issue, I'm like, ah, well, Emma's going to be part of it. And no, of course not. This is Saturnine. And uh, if you're not familiar with the cover image, it is Saturnine playing chess with all of our Excalibur characters on the board. But then there's a giant apocalyptic hand over her head as though it's going to play her as a piece as well. Let's get into it here. This is Excalibur, Volume 4, Number 12. Had a November 2020 cover date. The story is called Verse 12, The Beginning. Written by Teeny Howard, with art by Marcus Toe. Colors, Eric Arshinaiga. Letters, VCs, Ariana Marr. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa white Sabolsky. Cover price, $4, and went on sale September 16th of 2020. Now, we are right away with the roll call here. We don't get a cold open, so let's get into who we're going to be focused on today. We've got Apocalypse, Gambit, Rogue, Richter, Betsy Britton, and Saturnine. Then, our double-page spread of creds, which welcomes us to the beginning of our mass crossover event. And then we kick off the comics bit with, uh, well, some externals. Um, they were at the Eternal Caldara at Krakoa. And there, he is met by his original Covenites, the externals. And yeah, they're still pretty boring. Now, they yammer on a bit about their connection and their communion, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we go on. And uh, also the fact that uh, their special gift of resurrectability, well, it ain't so special anymore, you know, considering that every mutant can do it now. The externals take this as them being referred to as obsolete, when I think the word old Saul was actually looking for was redundant. Now, Apocalypse assures them that this isn't the case at all, as the externals were still his, still first, right, and therefore still important. Let's meet our external High Lords with a roll call of their own. We've got Apocalypse again. Cruel, Nicodemus, Kandra, Selene, Friggin Gideon, Saul, and Absalom. On this info page, because this is an info page, we see a list of two external gifts. Resurrection, which is self-explanatory, and Communion. Which is to say that anywhere these folks are, they can find each other. And they can come back together get back to comics here, and we are back with Richter still emerging through that otherworldly Krakoan gateway that we saw him go through last issue. Now, he's fallen, he's fallen, he's fallen, he's scratching, he's 
flailing, let's say, until he emerges right where all the externals are thanks to A's guidance. Now, upon his arrival, the High Lords proclaim that Richter is not a High Lord. He's not an external. To which Apocalypse seems to change the subject, I think. And he suggests that the externals do their duty, which is to give up their ancient bones to power the Krakoan gateway to Saturnine's citadel. And if they don't agree with this, he'll kill them? I feel like I'm missing something here. Now, Richter, he's just as confused as I am. He informs him, and us, that the externals must die in order to power both Richter and that gateway. And again, I feel like I'm missing something. Like, my reading comprehension is sometimes quite lacking, but eh, I don't know. This is all going somewhere, though. It's just uh, taken a while. A then calls Celine, Richter, and Gideon to his side, which tells us that the rest are probably going to be serving as the sacrificial lambs to power this gateway. Oh, Absalom will also wind up making it. Saul manifests into a giant dragon, or just manifests a giant dragon? I don't know. We, we get several pages of a dragon, is what I'm trying to say here. Blowing fire, snorting, being angry. Then, he says our ritual's about to begin. And I'm really, really sorry if this comes across as confusing, but to little old me, it, it kind of is. I mean, not even an info page can help us, because... Well, our next info page is one of those pages out of A's grimoire, which make no sense to begin with. You know, I'm, now more than ever, it makes no sense. Let's get back to comics here. And Nicodemus, Saul, Cruel, and Kandra are dead. Their essences, their bones, their souls, or whatever the hell it is, they turn to red crystal. Except for Kandra, who is empty and has been for a while. So... Nicodemus, Saul, and Cruel, they've got these giant red crystals just around them, right? Around their corpses here. Kandra doesn't have any of that. And I mean, we did see them turn her essence, or whatever it was, into that red gemstone just last issue in the flashback, right? So this shouldn't be all that big a surprise to Apocalypse, should it? Eh, but it is anyway. I, I know I asked this a lot when we read next Excalibur, but did I miss an issue? I really feel like I did. Okay, let's shift scenes over to Otherworld, where we left Rogue and Gambit, who were rifling through Saturnine's closet. They found that red gemstone, which I totally didn't realize was Kandra's soul, essence, bones, whatever the hell it was last issue, which certainly speaks to my muddled reading comprehension on that. Anyway, here we are, in the Citadel, with Gambit and Rogue. And Kandra, who is now haunting Gambit, since he's carrying around her soul or whatever. And this isn't the first time that we've seen this sort of connection between the two of them. This one goes way back to, to Gambit's earliest series. Now, Gambit chats up Kandra, who's while walking slightly behind Rogue, who somehow doesn't hear all that much from this somewhat contentious discussion he's having with a spirit. Let's head over a few rooms and meet back up with Betsy and Opal Luna Saturnine here. Now, Saturnine laments that Betsy's all that remains of the Captain Britain Corps and talks about how Betsy's beautiful blonde British brother Brian was so much better in the role. They then go up an elevator and enter a room where we see those odd current year Excalibur-themed Captain Britons all shacked up in crystal. Now this is that rogue Richter Gambit and Jubilee versions of Captain Britain here, where they're all, you know, union-jacked up. And I figure if this was a Star Wars comic, these would already have action figures out, you know. Now, Saturnine refers to these various disparate captains as abominations. 
and they talk a little bit more about how Betsy is a mutant Captain Britain and how that doesn't exactly ease any of Saturnine's concerns because, in case you didn't know this, people tend to hate mutants. I mean, we don't go more than a handful of pages in these books without that reminder, but here it is again. Let's jump back to Krakoa. Now, A.E. is trying to figure out his next step, and even consider sacrificing himself, again, in order to power this gateway. Back to the Citadel, there's an alarm sounding. And in fairness, Gambit did steal a great big gemstone out of Saturnine's closet, so yeah, alarms might sound. Now, Kandra asked that Gambit turn her essence over to Saturnine, as it would save her from Apocalypse. And if you recall, Gambit is not keen on doing anything that might help Apocalypse after all the stuff that went down with Rogue during the first arc of this volume. Saturnine then calls for her priestesses to destroy the Krakoan Gate, which Betsy ain't keen on at all. He calls out to her, claiming that he feels Kandra's soul is nearby her. And she figures out that the big old gem that Gambit stole is Kandra's soul, and he asks for him to toss it through the gateway to Apocalypse. And after a little bit of internal struggle, Gambit does just that. We wrap up with the powered gateway to the Starlight Citadel, and a lot less optimism from your humble host as it pertains to our upcoming X of Ten's month of reviews. But that's where we leave it. Next episode, we finally wrap up the Giant Size books with Giant Size X-Men colon Storm number one. So let's talk about Excalibur. Let's talk about Excalibur. Do you all like this issue? I didn't. <laughs> I, I really just didn't understand it. Um, now, do I attribute much of this issue to my inability to follow a simple story, or do I attribute it to the nebulous otherworld effect? I know I would like to just blame the story for being nonsensical and all over the place, but for that to be true... This would have had to have been written in English, run through Google Translate into several different languages, and then back again. And I really don't think that was the case. So this was probably just a situation in which I didn't get it. And I mean, it's almost a, it's almost a meme at this point, but I feel like every time we cover an issue of Excalibur on the show, I mention that I can't shake the feeling that we're missing something. Or, or more like I'm missing something. I don't want to speak for everybody. I feel like I'm missing maybe context story pages i don't know maybe i just have a weird intentional blind spot to all this other world stuff where i i subconsciously purge bits and pieces of this from my brain i don't know i don't know it's just uh, i'm always feeling like i'm like i'm two steps behind where this book needs me to be in order to fully appreciate it and i mean maybe that's on purpose or maybe i'm just an idiot that's always a possibility it's a probability as a matter of fact I read this issue twice, and I still just, like, I don't get where we're, what we're doing here. I don't know where, I don't know how we got to where we're at in a lot of cases, and I don't know what the point of a lot of things are here. I mean, let's talk about some of the things we got here. We introduced the external element to this, to this story just last issue, and here we are killing off half of them. Feels kind of strange. Um, we also get an entire scene last issue where Kandra has her soul placed into a gem with the help of all of the externals. And here, he is surprised to find out that she no longer has a soul? I mean, did I miss something? Was there something here that was plainly obvious that I just maybe glossed over? I mean, I must have, right? 
I mean, if there's anybody listening who would like to set me straight, please, please do. Just be gentle, because, you know, this book is making me feel dumb enough as it is. Um, it's still beautiful. It's still really, really nice to look at. But as far as the story goes, I feel like we're getting just a mishmash of cool scenes without anything to bridge them together. You know, it's like, I really want to do this scene where Gambit steals this gem, but it's just there. It just it doesn't feel organic. Uh, maybe a little convenient, you know. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm ill-equipped to discuss this issue, and I apologize for doing it uh, perhaps a grand disservice in trying. But uh, I'm confused. Uh, I'm not optimistic for what's to come. I My saving grace here is that everything in our 22-23 part crossover that's coming will have to be in some semblance of order, right? So everything will lead to the next chapter, and hopefully every time I get to an Excalibur chapter, I won't be rifling through my long boxes to make sure I didn't miss something. That would be a delight, but uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, beautiful book. A lot of interesting bits in this, but the way it was presented was uh, maybe just a little too over your humble host's head, I guess. I guess that's where we'll leave it today. Um, now, that was Excalibur number 12. Let's uh, hop into the mailbag before we cut out of here today. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Hellions number 3. He says, You're right to say that this issue really does make villainy sound like a logical response from Maddie when you consider what she's been through. Turns out editorial fiat is the biggest villain. Now, Hellions, uh, that first arc there was such a... Uh, such an interesting study for a character like Madeline Pryor, who, uh, and I mean, I've said this pretty much every episode since we've covered it, um, she's acting the way she is um, in order to leave a mark, in order to make it known that she existed, and uh, it's something that really speaks to me. I like it a lot. Now, Damien continues, Generally speaking, I continue to enjoy Hellions. I find it weird that I don't get upset by the ultraviolence in Hellions, but it often annoys me in X-Force and Wolverine. I think the difference is tone. Hellions has a very consistent voice where X-Force is all over the place, veering from try-hard comedy to attempts at geopolitics. Yes, <laughs> I agree 100%. I feel like with Hellions, and I, I, I loathe to use the Suicide Squad comparison because... Uh, I mean, to me, Suicide Squad is not really a slapsticky book. I, I don't know what the movie was like. I'm assuming it was a little bit more over the top than what we'd usually get from the comic. But I, I hate to compare it to that, but I feel like tonally there might be uh, some parallels, some similarities here. To where when we see over-the-top violence, it, it kind of works. Whereas X-Force, like you said, it, it doesn't have an identity. I mean, in any issue of X-Force, we could jump from laughing at the fact that Quentin Quire died again to body horror to CIA talk to rounding up Russian mutants. I mean, it, it it's all over the place. It is all over the place. And Wolverine, I mean, is in the similar boat there. So yeah, Hellions, it really just works for it. Uh, Damien continues, I know that nostalgia is a huge part of my affection for this book. Using characters from the Australian era puts it right in my sweet spot, but that's not the whole reason, as I'm also beginning to understand the point of Quinan. In fact, it amazes me that the second wave of Dawn of X has managed to get me to care about characters from Fallen Angels. Both Kid Cable and Psylocke have been revitalized. 
its miracle far more impressive than the resurrection protocols. And no doubt, no doubt, I think that's where a lot of my trepidation for uh, Wave 2 in general came from, was the fact that Fallen Angels was just such a dud. And uh, seeing Psylocke uh, Quanan on the covers of Hellions made me worry that we were going to get more, you know, purple prose and uh, butterfly talk and this isn't my body talk, you know. I, I was really worried that it was going to be more of the same. And then we have Kid Cable who, boy, he's <laughs> they're killing it in that book. And I mean, let's take it a step further here. X-23 is currently in the vault, you know, dressed as Kid Wolverine again. So Fallen Angels, why in the hell did that exist? Did it exist? Did we dream it? <laughs> is that, I mean, it, it hurt us enough, so it, uh, so it, we know it exists, just like Madeline Pryor, right? It hurt us, so it existed. Uh, it just feels such a, like, such a weird thing where I, I wonder if it's even going to get a mention again. I wonder if halfway through that series, because it was never announced as a limited series, right? I think we were supposed to believe it was going to be an ongoing, just like the rest, the other five uh, launch titles for Dawn of X. When uh, when I ordered issue six from DCBS, it didn't say final issue. And then next month, when number seven didn't come out, I didn't. I was just like, oh, well, okay, we're skipping this month. And then the following month, when issue seven didn't come out again, it's like, oh, okay, I guess that's done now. So it really didn't make it seem like it was a done deal, at least to me from you know the periphery. But yes, Hellions is doing a actually Wave Two is doing a great job in revitalizing some of these characters that. I never thought that I'd give half a damn about, but uh, they are, they're really doing well here. And uh, Damien wraps it up with, anyway, until Arclight gets her own cooking show, make my neck lapsed. And uh, yeah, I don't think I would want to watch that cooking show there. Uh, her, uh, her appetite is for, uh, is for flesh, so we don't want to see that. It, it's weird, that's one of the very few things on this planet that freaks me out is cannibals, because, uh, you know, I talk about getting lost in how the how the sausage is made, and that is certainly a situation where I do not want to know how the sausage is made, literally and figuratively. It just really, really gets under my skin. But uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts on uh, Hellions. Next up, we've got a two-parter from our friend Evan Bevins. First, he's going to talk about Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed. Now, he says, I finished up Resurrects Lapsed, which Alexa pronounces very well. I agree, the finale was a little underwhelming. For me, that was due in part to having the ending summed up from a different perspective in another title. Spoilers don't necessarily negate the enjoyment of an excellent story, but knowing where this one was headed stole a little bit of the thunder for me. A relatively minor quibble I had was Old Man Logan back in issue 4 enjoying killing Madroxes. Isn't his his whole raison d'etre that he accidentally killed the X-Men while under Mysterio's influence? I know he eventually popped the claws again and led to the horrendous finale, but still, it's kind of like Magic's broccoli genocide remark in Empire X-Men number two. It may have seemed funny in the script, but it really didn't fit. And I agree, 100%. For folks who just listen to, uh, you know, X-Lapsed Classic and don't, uh, don't veer into the Sunday specials, um, the second one we did was Phoenix Resurrection, The Return of Jean Grey. And as Evan is mentioning here, in the fourth issue... The X-Men are trying to find Jean Grey, and they uh, wind up in this otherworldly, elsewhere place, right? That's a, a 
an environment being curated by the Phoenix, basically, to keep Jean sequestered long enough for her to become the host for the, the Phoenix Force. Now, inside this little sequestered elsewhere are a bunch of dead mutants. So among them, I guess Jamie Madrox was dead at this point. I don't know how he died, but he was dead at this point. And so when the X-Men came in, they were attacked by a bunch of these then-dead mutants. And old man Logan, who was you know still the Wolverine going at, the, at this point, took great glee in just slashing and maiming as many Madroxes as possible while commenting, oh, I've wanted to do this ever since I met the guy. Yeah, I don't like that. (laughs) I don't like that at all. And Evan bringing up that old man Logan's whole gimmick was that he was manipulated or he killed a bunch of X-Men while under uh, Mysterio's influence. And so he shouldn't want to do things like that, right? I mean, our current Wolverine uh, wound up killing his entire X-Force team under the Pale Girl's uh, influence in the opening arc of the the new Wolverine volume, so... I guess it's same as it ever was. But yeah, I thought that whole uh, killing the Madroxes was in pretty bad taste. And I mean, we're not really getting a whole lot of good use out of Jamie to begin with here, are we? Because even take it into our current books here. In Empire X-Men, he was making dupes just to send out to be eaten by zombies. Yeah, that sucks. It's, it's As Evan said here, it may have seemed funny in the script, but no. Uh, also, Jamie as a as a manual laborer, being the entire workforce for Krakoa in the Savage Land and elsewhere, it's a uh, yeah, poor Jamie just ain't getting a ain't getting a fair shake anymore. So yes, we are in a hundred percent agreement that uh, that wasn't great, and uh, unfortunately, neither was the ending to Phoenix Resurrection. Here was a little underwhelming. Very very strong first three issues. Issue 4 started to show, show some seams, and then Issue 5 was basically Gene talking to a bird. So, that was that. But uh, also from Evan here, he's got a message for all of you listening along with this program. He says, For anyone who is using or thinking about using Hoopla, which is the free like digital library uh, application... Volume 2 of X-Men, which includes issues 7 through 11, and Marauders Volume 2, which includes issues 7 through 12, are on there now for free. Plus, if you want to read the main Empire story, the Empire trade is there for you. So big thanks to Evan for sharing that. If anybody would like to check out Hoopla, please do so. Uh, If you're on the fringes of reading this stuff, or if you just don't want to spend the money on it, and you don't have Marvel Unlimited... Hoopla is a great way to do it. I haven't, I haven't yet tried it myself because digital stuff ain't my thing. But if digital stuff's your thing, hey, it's right there. No reason not to give it a shot. So, Volume Two of X Men, Volume Two of Marauders, and the entire Magilla of Empire. Whether we want that one or not. But thanks again, Evan. That's uh, really, really appreciated. It's nice to have someone with all the deets on the Hoopla. But that's where we're going to leave it for today. Uh, if anybody would like to get a hold of me, you could do so very easily. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com or xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook about whatever you'd like to talk about. It's Our little group is called 90s X-Men. 
And you can listen to anything from the Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That'll do it for today. I want to thank everyone for sharing your time with me. And uh, till next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 107 of X-Lapsed, where hopefully for the last time we're going to be covering a giant size issue of X-Men here. Uh, let's get right into it. we got a lot to talk about today. This is Giant Size X-Men Storm, number one, which had a November 2020 cover date. The story is called Disintegration, written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Russell Dodderman. Colors, Matthew Wilson. Letters, VCs, Ariana Marr. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, B. So White Zabalski. Cover price, $5. Went on sale September 16th of 2020. Alrighty, well, we open by flashing back to what brought us here in the first place. Uh, if you all remember, uh, that techno-organic virus has been ravaging Storm's body. Though, uh, I guess if you were... If you missed only two issues from the entire Dawn of X run, uh, you might not know that, because it's only mentioned in this and two other issues. Now, it's worth noting, we covered the issue where the virus was uh, discovered as being a thing back in episode 51 of the show. I mean, it's episode 107, so that's a long-ass time ago. It's also worth noting that the this techno-organic virus that is ravaging Storm's body is not the same sort that exhibit in the phalanx or even cable. So this is a whole nother boring strain of it. So, here we are with Jean and Emma. They're chatting up our sickly Storm. Now, Emma suggests that Storm just uh, quit fighting. Just allow herself to die. After all, she'll be back lickety-split, right? Now, Jean is completely repulsed by this idea, and rightfully so, right? But, thankfully, she doesn't mention that she herself dies all the time, right? Because we've talked about that low-effort sort of stuff here before, haven't we? And, thankfully, they sidestepped it this time out. Now, the ladies are interrupted by the arrival of Monet, who's got an idea on how Storm might be saved. First, 
double page spread of creds followed by our roll call page. We're going to be focusing on Storm, Jean Grey, Emma Frost, Monet, Cypher, and Phantom X. We jump ahead to later, as Doug and Monet are looking for someone. And it's someone who we already met during the last Giant Size issue, but what are you going to do? Now they break into Ned the AIM Beekeeper's house because, well, they need to get access to the world, and I guess they know he knows how to do such a thing. Now he's shocked to see them because he's expecting Phantom X. And, uh, and to be fair, they yanked his door right off its hinges, so that's a little surprising. Now he also makes some cute comments about how Phantom X is paying him to quote, double-cross his super-evil science organization, which I'm sure caused somebody on social media to wet themselves in delight, because... Ugh, okay. Now we jump ahead to Phantom X's arrival, and we get another too-cute-by-half scene, during which he and Monet haggle over how much the X-Men are going to have to pay in order to get into the world. Finally, Storm's had enough, as have I, and we get this story moving. Now, the scene isn't near as funny as I think it's supposed to be, but it's Russell Dottoman, so it's beautiful to look at nonetheless. So, Ned the Beekeeper plops a coin into a wall, which I suppose is an entry point into the world, and our team steps on in. Now, the world, as boring as I find it, looks really, really cool under Dottoman's pencils and inks. Now, there's this weirdly shaped place in the distance which appears to be under attack by these strange eyeball monsters that are flying around and blasting it. And naturally, this is the exact place that our team must go in order to rid Storm of her virus. So bada-bing, bada-boom, it's fight time. We get to see Doug enrobed in warlock skin, which is pretty cool. He's, you know, how he usually has the warlock arm, right? Now he's just totally covered in the techno-organic mesh. Uh, Monet penances up, which... I still don't care for, but I guess I should probably just accept. Then Storm uses her powers to sweep away the rest of the eyeball beasts with a great wind. Then Phantom X's brother shows up and kind of just stands there. Ned loads Storm into a machine to begin the separation process. Then the eyeball cavalry arrives on the scene to uh, try to get rid of our X-Men here. Monet tries to hold them off, but cannot. Thankfully, though, just as the baddies arrive at the machine, a fully healed Storm emerges from it. She then, I assume, takes care of the beasts. We don't really get to see a whole lot of it, but we gotta figure that's what happened. Now, as the dust settles, the machine starts to act up a little bit. And so, Ned sprays a weird mist onto it, which seemingly collects all the techno-organic hoodoo and solidifies it into a small... I don't know, it looks like a chess piece. Maybe it's a chess piece, I don't know. Phantom X asks his brother if he's ready to leave the world. Naturally, he's not. He plainly states that he's never gonna leave. And so, Phantom X agrees to remain here with him. Not only that, but Ned, the AIM beekeeper, decides to stay in the world as well. You ask me, these are both value-added moves. If we never see either of these guys again, it'd be too soon. Now, just as the X-Men go to leave, Doug notices something about the weird chess piece. He realizes that it's sentient, alive. It speaks to him in a language we don't understand, but he probably does. And he tells it that he'll, uh, he'll see it around. And that's that. Next episode, the other half of our X of Tens Part Zero, and the final Dawn of X Wave 1 number 12, it's X-Men. But... Let's talk about this giant size issue here, shall we? 
And uh, there's going to be some vamping involved because uh, there really isn't a whole heck of a lot to say, right? But would you believe that the issue we just looked at is a perfect issue? It totally is. The internet wouldn't lie. Well, maybe the internet would lie for retweets and clicks, but that's beside the point. Now, this entire giant size endeavor, the five issues we covered here, it just screams page filler to me. And at 25 bucks for the lot of them, I think we need a little bit more than that. Um, I mean, hey, at least with this one, with Storm in the title, it is Giant Size X-Men Storm, we actually feature Storm. So it's got that going for it. We can't always guarantee that in these stories. What it also has going for it is the art, which is spectacular. And the only reason I'd ever tell any of you to spend your hard-earned money on this issue would be to own the art. Now, I ask you all here, um, does anything scream afterthought, like a potentially fatal plot thread for a major character being kept out of every book we see her in except for these? I mean, this is like X-Men Unlimited sort of stuff. And as loath as I am to begin a sentence with, quote, I think we can all agree, but... I think we can all agree that X-Men Unlimited was unnecessary filler made to exploit completionists and squeeze every last dime out of a loyal readership. I tell you, recently I was on an episode of Source Material Live over at the uh, Rattledge and Broadcasting and W2M Networks, and we were talking about a recent Star Wars miniseries called Bounty Hunters. Now, let me just say this straight away. I have precious little interest in Star Wars. Really couldn't care less. That being said, I still view Star Wars as being this mythological story, you know, something that you would put on a pedestal. Among the best of the best as it pertains to science fiction, which might sound completely ridiculous to those more in the know, but this is just the direction that I'm coming to this from. And so we uh, read this Star Wars Bounty Hunters comic from Marvel not too long ago. I think it's... I think it's still going on, uh, as a matter of fact, so it's very recent here. And we're reading this, and I was just gobsmacked as to how they would dilute the Star Wars product and franchise by putting out a series that, in my opinion, served no purpose, didn't need to be made. Then, in talking with my co-host for that episode, I learned that this is only the tip of the iceberg in as far as diluting the Star Wars name. And despite not being a fan of the property, you know, I liked the first three movies when I was younger, but that's about as far as my fandom went. So not being a fan of the property, I still felt as though I lost something in learning that they're just diluting the hell out of this property, this product. I was no longer, you know, the wide-eyed innocent I was just moments before, you know, holding this franchise in such high regard or esteem, I guess, from afar. Uh, to having the far-too-late revelation that uh, these are nothing more than money machines, and Disney is just going to keep cranking that lever till it falls off. If I can relate this to our X-Books, with the post-Hoxpox X-Men, I was expecting an all-killer, no-filler approach, right? We're going to do this right. And I suppose my brief absence from all things Marvel may have restored a bit of my childlike naivete, or... Maybe I'm a glutton for punishment, or maybe I have some sort of twisted disappointment fetish? I don't know. I'm taking the scenic route here, and I apologize, but 
I figured that everything that happened in this family of titles was going to build upon itself and actually matter. There wouldn't be exploitative titles. There wouldn't be a nouveau X-Men Unlimited book. I was wrong. We had Fallen Angels, a book that hasn't been and probably never will be referred to since. We had Empire Colon X-Men, which was a whole other thing. We've had a half dozen meandering one-and-dones in X-Men Volume 5. And we've had these giant-sized series of books which, in my opinion, are kind of the polar opposite of all killer, no filler, right? This is all filler, no killer. And, well, maybe, maybe we can excuse these giant sizes as being the artist showcases. There's still no reason for them to exist as overpriced standalones. I mean, these could have been regularly, regularly priced issues of X-Men Volume 5. And if that were the case, we would have gotten them in quicker succession and they would have felt more as though they actually mattered. I mean, Storm, one of, the, one of the biggest characters in this entire X-Men property, was dying during this, and it's never mentioned anywhere, except for the Gene and Emma book, the Fandom X book, and this book. I mean, Storm is a major character in Marauders. They never mention the fact that, oh yeah, by the way, she's dying. We never heard anything except for these books. I mean, let's let's talk about that for just a second here, the storm dying thing. I'm going to guess that this whole shebang kind of came out of Storm running into Serafina way back in X-Men number one. So, uh, and I hate to be a broken record, but why not just let this story play out in the pages of X-Men then? Maybe because Marvel wanted an extra 25 bones out of the, their most loyal consumers? I, I don't know. And again, I'm, I'm sorry for vamping here. There's just not a whole lot to say. Storm is sick. Monet knows about the world. They go to the world. They plop Storm into a machine. Bada-bing, we're done. You know, chop a buck off this issue, and I might be a little bit more forgiving. But for an overpriced and weirdly disjointed run of books like the giant-sized books have been, I can't recommend this, other than for the art. Which, I mean, these are the artist showcases, so that's probably the point overall, but uh, it is a gorgeous book. Russell Dodderman, phenomenal artist. Uh, Rod Reese in the last issue, I mean, if nothing else, these have been very, very nice to look at. Uh, Let's go back to my wide-eyed innocence for just a minute here. Um, Looking at the giant sizes as a cluster of books here, the five of them, I really thought that elements from the other giant size issues were going to come into play here. I thought there'd be something to do with Lady Mastermind. You know, who was rescued during that laughably mistitled giant-sized Nightcrawler issue. Even though we already saw her arrive on Krakoa back during Hoxpox. I also thought maybe there'd be something to do with Emma's new Sentinel-headed island. But nope. Nope to both. So disjointed, so unnecessary, just eh. I guess overall, this was a very, very nice book to look at. But as a story, wholly unnecessary. Um, your mileage may and, and hopefully does vary. I don't think we needed these books, and I will probably never look at them again. Um, now, just a few episodes to go till we hit exit tens. So let's hope that I don't decide to bust out a merry X lapsed in January week <laughs> between then and now, just to survive the trip there. Fingers crossed that uh, it'll be smooth sailing from this point on. But. Uh, that's all I got to say about this giant size issue. Apologies for being negative if you find them being overly negative. 
I just uh, don't see a reason for these to exist the way they are. But uh, hopefully uh, you enjoyed them better than I did. Let's hop into the mailbag here, which, uh, hey, if you have any uh, you know thoughts on these issues, please feel free to write in and we'll cover it in the mailbag. Uh, we're going to start with Damien, who's talking about X-Factor number two. Uh, now, Damien says... It's interesting to me that you rated X-Factor number one higher than me, and I rated number two higher than you. I suppose it shows that Chris problems and Damien problems are two different beasts. What I liked about this issue was the focus on characters. The way they interact with each other and their reactions to the Mojoverse were revelatory. I find myself returning to the theory that Krakoa is removing inhibitions. It was one of our big theories surrounding the Crucible, and also came up in discussing the Scott-Jean-Logan relationship and the reactions to death and resurrections. Maybe Leia Williams was told that the characters had fewer inhibitions, and she's taking it to its logical conclusion with Dakin. Dakin. Uh, Damien votes Dakin, but he has no idea how it should be pronounced either. Uh, Damien continues, Removing inhibitions from someone who is already uninhibited would cause the kind of behavior we see here. It would also explain the fact that the team are openly criticizing Dakin. Dakin. Uh, they are not politely allowing him to do what he likes in his private life. That's definitely a theory I can buy into. And it just it just kind of stinks that we need to we need to concoct that, you know, outside the book here. It's not clear in the book that that's why the characters are acting this way. It's it certainly makes sense, but it makes me feel like we're doing the job of the writer here. We're writing these stories now. We're making we're filling in the blanks that really shouldn't be left blank. Um you know, part of me can't shake the feeling as though much of this volume of X-Factor is being written for a very, very specific audience, for the most part. And that audience is, like, Leia Williams' Twitter followers and uh, the legit or connected internet comics reviewers. Now, this X-Factor number two was one issue where I actually decided to subject myself to the comic book reviewer aggregate, simply because I came away with it with such a strong distaste, Right. I suppose I just wanted to see where my thoughts stood alongside the rest. You know, sometimes, you, not for validation so much, but to maybe educate myself a little more. Maybe to see if I am being too hard on a book. Because when I, when I dislike a book to the point that I really didn't care for this issue, it bothers me. Because I, I worry that I'm overreacting. I'm always going to take someone else's opinion as being more valid than my own. I mean, there are people listening to this right now who I conferred with after reading X-Factor number two to be like, hey, what did you think? You know, just because I wasn't sure I wanted to be so negative about it. And if I could be helped in any way to see it a different way, I was going to take it. So I went to the comic book reviewer aggregation site and the X-Factor number two page looked like far too many Rotten Tomatoes pages that we see these days. You know, the paid-for critics who likely got the issue comped by Marvel and would like to keep getting issues comped by Marvel all rated it extremely high. While the commoners, like myself, who most likely paid the four bucks for the thing, rated it extremely low. And trust me when I say, Marvel and DC do reward for better-than-good reviews, and they do threaten to punish and withhold swag for less-than-stellar reviews. Trust me when I say that. And I mean, I get different strokes for different folks. And we all have our preferences, but when I see stuff like that, where the folks who are getting the free stuff are saying it's great, and the people who aren't are saying, eh, maybe not, 
I become suspicious of the integrity of reviews on both sides. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not pointing fingers to one side or the other. With as many, in my opinion, phony 10 out of 10 scores that there are, I'm sure there are people out there just review bombing the things to, in their minds, level the playing field, right? So the 10s and the zeros, you get rid of those. Hell, you know, get rid of the anything below a 3 and get rid of the 9s and 10s. That's where your truth is going to be. That's where your honest reviewers, in my opinion, are going to be located. Now, Damien continues. Another element I really liked in the story was the sense of place. You get a clear idea of how it feels to enter the boneyard and how the space operates. Following Aurora as she enters a building works very well. Again, when they get to Mojo World, we get to see how buildings relate to each other, and you can clearly see their progress or lack of, or lack of towards Spiral. Very good points. Very good points here. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the art here, because on second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, however many looks I gave this, um, the art is starting to win me over a bit. The art is starting to win me over. Um, Damien continues here, I also loved the art. I find David Baldion's work so expressive of character, and I think he does a great job of making the different characters distinctive. It's interesting that during Merry X Lapsed, you were enthusiastic about Joe Najuara, but you seem to find Baldion's style too much. I think he fits the material so well. Can you imagine Lionel Yu drawing this? It would fail on every level. Yeah, I don't want to see Lionel Yu drawing this. I sure don't. Um, no, I'm, I am coming around on David Baldion's style here. Uh, it is, it is a, uh, what is that, what is that saying I'm looking for here? Uh, maybe an acquired taste? I don't know. Um, I will say it's probably not for everyone because it is, it is different. It is stylized, right? That's the word we use, stylized. But I am coming around to it here. I do wish he would stop with the roll eyes on everybody. I mean, everybody's rolling their eyes constantly in this book. But uh, I am coming around to it. I am coming around to it. Uh, Damien continues with, It's also great to see the beginning of a personality being, being given to Northstar's husband. His reaction to seeing Aurora resurrected is the most depth I've ever seen from him. Sad but true, right? I mean... It's such a shame, looking back, that Marvel felt the need to rush the romance and relationship between Northstar and Kyle. I think his name was Kyle. Uh, like they did. I mean, it was, it was, it was definitely all about beating DC to the punch. But still, such a disservice to their relationship here. I mean, I, I did, we didn't need to see them go through a, a really long courtship and a long engagement. But give us something. Give us something here. Don't just say, here's a guy, okay, now they're married, bada-bing, bada-boom. I feel like they really, really just ignored uh, some very potentially special moments that we could have shared with this couple here. And to make it feel more organic, make it feel more real, and to let us all celebrate it. Instead, it was just like, okay, gotta, we got to get to the ceremony so DC doesn't do it first. And that's just the way it was. But... Here we are, what, about 10 years later, and we're finally, I mean, we finally find out this guy's name. So there's that. <laughs> Damien wraps up with, anyway, until Dakin Dakin becomes celibate, make my next lapse, which I think is a very, very, very long time from now. So we're going to be riding these airwaves together for quite some time, and I couldn't be happier about that. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on a very divisive issue, Damien. Uh, next. Evan Bevan's uh, discussing another issue that I didn't like. I mean, this. why do I still do this show? I feel like I hate everything. Do I hate everything? I hope not. 
uh, we're going to be talking about X-Men number 10. Evan says, I'm not going to try to change your mind on X-Men number 10, because I pretty much agreed with you. Vulcan is a character I wish I'd never read about, mainly because his origin in X-Men Deadly Genesis felt to me as a parody of grim and gritty comics that was rejected for being too disturbing to be funny. I don't think I intentionally read anything with him until the latest X-Men number one, and I certainly groaned when I saw him there. I do have a bought-on-sale War, War of Kings trade I haven't read yet, but that had more to do with Darkhawk and the Guardians. Now, my history with Vulcan... It's a bit on the shallow side myself. Um, you all know me. If it has anything to do with Out of Space, I check out. So I didn't read War of Kings. I know I own the Emperor Vulcan miniseries that might be a part of that. I don't know. But that's only because I'm a completionist and an idiot. Uh, but I'm fairly certain I'll never actually sit down and read it. Now, outside of Deadly Genesis and the current year stuff, I want to say the only Vulcan I've read was during the... 675-part Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire by Ed Brubaker that ran in Uncanny X-Men probably, what, 15 years ago? Which, believe it or not, I think I actually sort of kind of enjoyed. It's been 15 years, but uh, when I think about it, I don't wince or cringe, so that's a good thing. Evan continues. X-Men number 10 felt like it could have been told in eight pages. Yes. But it was the first time in limited exposure I didn't actively dislike Vulcan. The idea that he wants to be better than what he's been, that has potential, especially since I do dislike what he's been, I so dislike what he's been. And Petra and Sway have potential as well. The mutants drinking, drinking heavily bit is very much overdone, but I can understand it with these two more than most. Krakoa may offer a clean slate, but these are two mutants who died on their very first mission, on Krakoa no less. Their teammates survived and eventually became X-Men, Darwin more or less, and an intergalactic emperor. Their new homeland is the place that killed them, and their only connection to anyone is hanging out at the Summer House, because one of their only friends is related to the Big Shots. That didn't come across in the story at all, and given that AA meetings on Krakoa must be packed, their boozing doesn't stand out. They're forgettable characters, and this is coming from a guy who recognized Lifeguard in X-Force number 9. But they are in story, too. I don't care for the issue, but maybe these pieces could be better used in the future. All very good points. And, I mean, just like we were talking about with the inhibitions in X-Factor, had this been better explained in the issue itself, and not just by using our own headcanon to make, it, make sense of it, I'd probably come away with it with a, you know, with a better taste in my mouth. But we don't get that sort of explanation here. We're left to use, uh, we're we're left to formulate these stories and fill in the blanks ourselves here. We, it's left to us to add pathos, right, and to make this boozing session stand out as something different from the Skate Eight Hundred other boozing sessions we've seen on Krakoa since Dawn of X began. Here, this just seems like more. Drunk mutants, which I, I don't need to see. Had their troubles been explored a little bit better, had we drawn that line there, it's like, okay, we're living, we're, we're, we're all living because of the island that killed us, right? The enti our entire people are wrapped up in the thing that killed us our first time out. Give us that stuff. You know, give us a little bit of that. Don't, don't leave it to us to fill in the blanks here. And maybe, maybe cool it with the drunk mutants, because... If we didn't get drunk mutants every time out, maybe this scene would have meant something. 
Maybe we would have been like, wow, why are they drinking? Why are they self-medicating? Why are they doing that? And it would have been a little bit easier to uh, to see it as something novel and different and, and worth paying attention to, where instead it's just like, hey, there's two more mutants with a blender. Oh boy, here we go. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that very divisive issue there, Evan. Uh, next up, a less divisive issue, but perhaps some interesting food for thought in the next couple of emails we have here. First, Andrew in Belfast is going to share some thoughts about Exlapsedination, which is our Sunday special show running right now where we look at the Extermination miniseries uh, that came out in 2018 or so that allegedly sends the original five time-displaced mutants back to where they came from, wherever it was that they did come from. We'll find out as we work our way through here. Now, Andrew says, I hope all's well with you. I've been blazing through a week's worth of back issues from the podcast and wanted to drop you a quick line on the topic of the Extermination miniseries. In the show, you commented on the time travel possibilities and the story issues thrown up by the return of the young X-Men back to their original timeline. Although I'm really not a fan of comic book movies, they never come close to the comic book art form for me, your comics did remind me of that scene in Avengers Endgame where the flaws in most time travel fiction were pointed out to Ant-Man, and he utters my six-year-old's favorite taboo line of, So Back to the Future was just a bunch of BS? <laughs> now, if you're not listening to Ex-Lapsedination, now one of the ideas I floated there was... What if Brian Bendis' original plan for the original five was to use them as a sort of in-story device to give the present-day X-Men a sort of reboot? Like, the time-displaced original five, they arrive in the present, right? Right after Avengers vs. X-Men. While here, they learn everything that happens to them. Everything that's going to happen to them in the interim, from the time they were yanked to present day. Then, they go back to the past with all that knowledge. And perhaps they make some different decisions because they're educated on what's going to happen. And those decisions might then be reflected in the present-day books, if you follow. Like, if a young Jean knows that she doesn't actually become the Phoenix, what would happen? Now, if Jean doesn't die, does Scott meet and marry Madeline Pryor? Does she get pregnant? Does she give birth to baby Nathan? How would things like that make the current year books look? Stuff like that. That's the that's the question that I floated out there, and that's something I'd love to discuss further because it's there's a lot of possibilities there, right? Uh, Andrew continues. You're right, though. We can, I think, only assume that our original team is, is time-sliding back to the 60s era with full knowledge of the developments in X history. Maybe the fact that they're only informed of that history rather than living it means they aren't fully abreast of every development in detail. But it sure did, ma did make me think about the time loop issues that could have possibly been used by Hickman to tee up his do-over of the X-verse in hindsight. Now there is the other reason I was so taken by this idea. Now if you've been listening to X-Lapsed from the start, you'll know that I began this endeavor with a lot of trepidation. I was worried, probably too worried, about what was going to be booted from the X-Lore and what was going to be allowed to remain here. We have the, the, uh, the Ten Lives of Mora. Don't know if everything happened in the most recent one. Well, we, I, we didn't know back then, or I didn't know back then. And I did many, plenty of uh, like mental gymnastics trying to figure out which t actual timeline we were working with. 
Of course, we're dealing with the actual one, right? But I didn't know that then, and I perhaps held on to those theories a bit too long. But sending these kids back could have been the catalyst for a big, huge change. Maybe a hox, pox, dox, rock, socks sort of change. Of course, it didn't go that way, but it could have. Andrew continues. My main reason for writing, though, is to highlight the fact that you may wish to throw issue three of the current series of champions into your dollar bin pile if you see it at your local comic shop. Because in that issue, founding member of the champions from the first Mark Wade series, then young Cyclops, comes to rescue his former champions as part of, the, of a Civil War-style storyline which sees their numbers being hunted down under a superhero registration-type storyline. The Cyclops that appears just in time to rescue his former teenage friends at the end of issue number three is the fully aged-up Cyclops, who obviously still remembers the fact that in his young future displaced form, he was close colleagues with his now-persecuted teen teammates. So we know that there is a memory of the Bendis displaced teammates' time spent in the future that survives the time to travel back in time and their lived experiences to the present day. Whew! Ant-Man was right about that time travel storyline. Now, that I didn't know about. I didn't know that uh, the young Cyclops came back any time since, right? So we're gonna definitely going to have to track down uh, Champions number three, and we'll, we will talk about it here. It'll depend whether or not it's going to get its own full episode, but we will definitely talk about it because that sounds very intriguing, and I'd love to hear. I'd love to see exactly what this uh, formerly young, now aged Cyclops from the past, future, past, present. Um, <clears throat> never mind, never mind. Andrew wraps up with, Anyway, just wanted to pop that thought down in an email before it evaporated from my tired dad brain. And until the verbose Leia Williams decides to opt for a silent, giant-sized issue, <laughs> make my next last. <laughs> well, thank you so much for letting us know about that issue of Champions, because that's not something that would be on my radar at any point. So uh, definitely going to keep an eye out for that so we can talk about that a little bit more. And for thoughts on the uh, X-Lapse donation, uh, big question of what would happen if these original five were from the 616 timeline sent back to the past with all the knowledge of everything that happens, what decisions do they make? Do they make the same ones? And I know there's all sorts. I'm not very good at time travel. So I know there's things like branching branching timelines. There's things like no matter what you do, it's going to happen the way it's supposed to happen sort of approach. I don't know none of that. Uh, that's, that's far above my pay grade and mental ability. So uh, I'd love to hear your theories. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk about one right now with our friend Jeremiah talking about X-Lapsination. He says... Chris, I listened to the latest Extermination episode and found your what-if discussion to be very interesting. I have to agree that a story involving the original five from the past going back to their own time with their current knowledge and seeing the impact of that happening on the present or even recent past X-Men history would make for a good story. I enjoy what-if stories for the most part, and one I've always wondered about since I first heard about it, possibly on your show was what if Chris Claremont or some other writer had followed through on his original idea to use Sabretooth as Wolverine's father. I'm not saying it's a good idea, but it's just one that could be interesting if it's explored in some kind of what-if scenario. Now this one. This one's straight out of my wheelhouse. Uh, it could, because it was among the bigger comic 
shop scuttlebutt rumors when I came into the X-Fandom. And because of that, I've always kind of held it in, in fairly high regard. It's, you know, it was who's Cable, is, is Sabretooth Wolverine's father. We had a handful of mysteries as I was coming in, and those, you know, it's never as good as when you first show up, right? So those were the biggies, and there's still things that kind of tickle me. So, this one actually has been explored further, and boy howdy do I wish it hadn't have been. There was a book called X-Men Forever. Well, there was a couple of books called X-Men Forever, but uh, one was an ongoing. First one was a uh, Avengers Forever-style story where it was kind of just playing with continuity. Fabian Niciesa wrote it. Um, it was a really fun time, probably right around the turn of the century. Then there was this ongoing... And uh, the ongoing here seems to have gone under a lot of folks' radars back in the day and now. Now, this book was the What If Chris Claremont Didn't Leave the X-Books Back in 1991 book, which was more or less Marvel's answer to, hey, we've got Chris Claremont under contract, and as per the agreement, we need to have him writing two books per month. So where can we put him where he'll do the least amount of damage? And the answer was the twice-monthly X-Men Forever. And it wasn't great. In it, the Is Wolverine Sabretooth Sun storyline was revisited and fleshed out a great deal, and uh, it wasn't great. <laughs> Jeremiah continues, I think one of the problems with a character like Wolverine, Cable, or even the Joker, whose origin is never explained, is that it gets to the point where their past is a complete mystery, and then it becomes their gimmick. Then, when a writer or editor wants to draw a line in the sand and commit something to the character's backstory, I'm looking at you, whomever made the decision to give Logan bone claws, you end up with half of the fans thinking the addition or change is great, and another half who thinks it stinks. 100% true. 100% true. And again, I came into the X fandom where cloudy backstories were kind of the soup of the day, right? We knew bits and pieces about characters like Wolverine and Cable. And every so often we'd spot another breadcrumb on the trail. But they were just that. They were just breadcrumbs. They were hints. They were theory fodder. I think it was Stan Lee who said, Never give the fans what they think they want. Which is a train of thought we might need now more than ever before. Because uh, you're absolutely right. In drawing that line in the sand... Yeah, it's hard to get that genie back in the bottle, right? There's not really an organic way of going back. Sometimes it's about placating a writer's ego, allowing them to be the one to define a character. Sometimes it's about beating Hollywood to the punch, as it allegedly was the case with uh, Origin, with Wolverine, right? Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, but in every in every situation, whether it works or not, we do lose something in the mystery, right? The mystery is... As as much of a gimmick as the mystery can become, we certainly lose something when it's not there anymore. And I think for reasons like that, it's like why I'm so cued into how is Hox Pox Docs going to wrap up, right? What, what's going? We have all these like mad theories that we're going through for uh, for these books in X Labs now because I think so many of us miss the days of the mystery. And now we have one. We don't know what's going to happen next, and I think that's why, I think that's why we enjoy and we stick with these books. Uh, as frustrating as they can be, sometimes we stick with them because it's all gonna it's all gonna come back around, and we're gonna be here. We're gonna be theorizing. We're on the ground floor, 
and we're all experiencing it together. Now, Jeremiah continues, back to Sabretooth. I think that if this was explored in a what-if scenario or a limited alternate timeline, it could have been somewhat interesting. There could have been some sort of edible tilt to the story that for whatever reason, Wolverine has to stop Sabretooth from doing something awful, and the only way to stop him would be to kill him. But he learns that he's his father, and now there's guilt about what he has to do. Or maybe Wolverine's berserker rage has gotten the better of him, and he commits some unspeakable act and becomes a pariah to the X-Men. Sabretooth hears about this and confronts Logan, telling him that he's no different from his father, revealing that he is indeed his father, and look at how alike they are. These are cliches and not very original ideas, but I think you get my point. In the hands of a talented writer, the idea could be explored in a what-if story, without committing to the idea to the main continuity and effectively messing up years of good stories. And yeah, I agree. If the story was handled as a shorter what-if subject, a sky's the limit. Could have been a great story. Actually having it bubbling as a subplot in X-Men Forever? Eh... <laughs> Now, there were plenty of ways they could have done this, pre-Origin, of course. But you never know, we do have that X-Men Legends book coming out in just a few weeks, I think, where the first arc of that is going to be something to do with the third Summers brother, which is another one of those rumors right out of my wheelhouse. So it wouldn't surprise me if somewhere down the line we have some sort of Wolverine Sabretooth deal going on with some sort of family tie. Weirder things have happened, right? So we'll stay tuned for that. But thank you so much, Jeremiah, for uh, for checking out X Lapsedonation and for sharing some uh, some food for thought here. Now we're gonna wrap up with a letter from our friend Jesse D. Young, and he is talking all about clones. Now he says, while reading Jody's letter a few episodes ago, you brought up how Shatterstar was not Dazzler's baby. In X-Factor, Volume 3, Issue 259, we actually do learn that Shatterstar is Dazzler and Longshot's baby, and not only that, but due to time travel, Shatterstar and Richter are there to deliver baby Shatterstar when Dazzler goes into labor early. It's also revealed that not only is Shatterstar Longshot's baby, but that Longshot is also a slightly altered clone of Shatterstar, making Shatterstar the father of his father and Longshot the clone of his son. Man, I love Peter David. And I think you summed up that story better than I ever could. <laughs> it's so weird. I'm sure we've all read comic stories that make like perfect sense, right? But only while you're reading it. While you're reading it and while you're in the mode, it makes perfect sense. But then you close the issue and you try to actually explain it to somebody else, even someone familiar with the subject matter, and you just become completely lost and babbly. That's how I would be trying to, to describe this Shatterstar Longshot X-Factor clone baby daddy thing. Hell, I, I've been on the air in similar situations trying to explain stories that, in my feeble mind, made sense. But actually trying to convey that information onto other folks? Forget about it. <laughs> I've been on some shows live. That's a scary situation. Uh, Jesse continues. I've also been pondering the cloning clones issues that we have been facing and what came up in Hellions number 3. You'd mentioned something about Laura being a clone of Wolverine, and if I remember correctly, she was actually half a clone, but I may be wrong. So maybe she would pass as being able to go through the resurrection protocols. I think what the Council is taking into account is that they have strict guidelines that, except for Proteus, there are no duplicates of currently living mutants. Since Jean is alive and Madeline's a clone of Jean, it would be redundant to bring her back. But there are others who we can question. And yes, you are right. You are right. I had to confer with the Marvel Wiki for clarification, but 
Laura technically isn't a clone of Wolverine, but instead, a genetic twin. A genetic twin. Hmm. It was apparently revealed during one of like the 5500 Death of Wolverine miniseries that Marvel was cranking out a few years ago that uh, Laura had enough of Sarah Kinney's DNA in her to make it so she's basically the daughter of Wolverine and Sarah. Which, uh, I hate to muddy the waters here, and I don't want to pull a Kurt Busiek during the, clones, the Spider-Man clone saga and ask, what of the skeleton in the smokestack, but... If we're only making it so clones shouldn't be resurrected, then, uh, what of Joseph? He wasn't a clone of Magneto, but a copy, right? Hmm. Yeah, we're never going to see Joseph again. Never mind. Never mind. Uh, Jesse continues. Gabby is a clone of Laura, so she would she get brought back if she died? The Stepford Cuckoos are all clones of Emma, and at some point they did bring back at least Esme and Sophie, who were dead pre-Hoxpox. Or were they? Then, what about Longshot being a clone of Shatterstar? I think Jean just doesn't want to deal with her husband's ex. Or, is she still married? Because they were married until death, do they part? But they've both died at least twice since they were married, so they are they twice unmarried? Whew, all great questions. Um, I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure we were down to only a couple of cuckoos there for a minute. So yeah, in part, the five-in-one was resurrected. I'm not sure how or when... Or if it had anything to do with the current day resurrection protocols But definite food for thought What happens if Esme Or or, or uh, Sophie Or or Numa Or Dumma whatever, What did Deadpool call one of them? Bumma? I think Bumma What if Bumma dies? Is, is Bumma going to get brought back? Or is she too clony? Now I want to say that Gabby a Honey Badger or Scout Or whatever the hell they're calling her She is a clone so it would be interesting to see what happens should she pass away. And Longshot, I mean, that's a weird one, isn't it? I guess the hoodoo with Shatterstar actually makes him kind of a mutant, sort of, right? I don't know, I'm still confused. I, I'm, I come from the day and age where Longshot was somebody that we would, all us high and mighty X-fans, would always correct people. Because people would say he was a mutant and we'd be like, uh, 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 no he's not. No he's not, but now he is, kind of, right? It was, always a little, it was always Longshot, Juggernaut, and Deadpool. Those were the three that people would be like, oh, those are my favorite mutants. It's like, no, no, those aren't mutants at all. But uh, Longshot might be now. I don't freaking know. Uh, Jesse continues. You may not realize it yet, Chris, but you've started a book club, and I get more excited to hear the feedback and discussions from Damien, Evan, yourself, and so many others than the content of the books themselves. It's awesome to finally have others to talk with about comics without my wife falling asleep while trying to explain the Doc Hawk being the superior Spider-Man storyline. You're just amazing for doing this. Thank you very much, Chris. Man, um, it's a good thing this isn't a video show because I'd have the stupidest smile on my face right now. That, that really made me smile. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you so much. I... I mean, I think I've said it before. I, I don't. I never thought anybody would want to engage with this program, but I'm absolutely taken aback by the fact that we have such an awesome little community here, and uh, it it means more to me than I, I than I can adequately put into words. Um, it's just so cool. It is just so cool that we 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 are a you know we are a book club here, and we do share these ideas, and we're sharing these experiences, and soon enough. We're all going to be at the same point, right? When I catch up with the rest of y'all and get through X of Tens, we'll be at, we'll be at the same point. We'll we'll all be experiencing everything for the first time together. I really can't wait. But uh, this 
stuff like this really makes this whole project worthwhile here. Um, it's not always easy to, to put together an episode, especially when, like I said, the books sometimes are lacking. Uh, sometimes I feel like these books are, you know, you're supposed to read them the one time, spend 10 minutes with it, put it aside, get to the next one, and instead of doing that, I'm spending an entire day with an issue, which is probably the most backwards way to go about catching up with something. But, uh, no, your, your comments mean so much to me. That, that That's... That's why I keep doing it. I just knowing that there's going to be folks who want to talk about this stuff is is all the reason I need. So thank you, thank you all so so much. Now uh, Jesse wraps up with so until we find out that Glob is Maggot's brother from another mother, make my next lapsed. Stranger things have happened. You never know. have we seen Maggot? I don't think we've seen Maggot since uh, since Hawksbox. Eh, maybe one of these days he'll come back. But uh, that is where we're going to leave the mailbag today. Thank you all so much for sharing your thoughts here. Um, going to the you know ex-lapsedination uh, question, just all these divisive issues that maybe I'm being a little too hard on, and, and talking about uh, the resurrection protocols here. That's all awesome stuff. Just really, really cool, and it really means a lot to me that... Uh, that you all want to engage So thank you Thank you all so much And if uh, there's anyone out there Who would like To be part of the mailbag And part of the show Please feel free to write And reach out You can find me at Ace Comics on Twitter Or you can send me an email At weirdcomicshistory At gmail.com You can check out Blog posts and show notes Over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com And xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com You can check out Our little Facebook group And leave all sorts of comments All sorts of Whatever you want Pop pictures in there do your thing. It's 90s X-Men on Facebook. And you can listen to all the shows on the Chris and Reggie radio network channel thing that we have at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for episode 107. Probably going to go about 50 minutes this time out. So I guess it's fitting it was a giant-sized issue because it's a somewhat giant-sized episode, which I would like to thank everyone so, so much for sharing with me and sharing your time. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 108 of X Lapsed, uh, where we are in the second half of our, I guess, X of Tens Part Zero, our prelude. I was going to say prologue, but I think they call it a prelude. Today we are talking about X-Men Volume 5, Number 12, which had a November 2020 cover date. The story is called Amenth, and we might find out what that word means sometime during this issue. Maybe. Written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Lionel Francis Yu. Colors, Sonny Go, Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles, Designs, Tom Muller, Edits, Bisa white Sabolsky. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale September 16th of 2020. Now let me just start by saying that I read this issue like two and a half, three times, and uh, have been absolutely dreading putting together a synopsis just from, like, from the get-go. Um, now this issue to me is fairly dull stuff, and I'm not quite sure how to connect with it. This stuff is uh, very outside of, uh, of the X-Men's wheelhouse, in my opinion. It's also emblematic of many of my current year comic book problems in that we're introduced to a whole bunch of new and unfamiliar characters and concepts, and we're just told to care. Will we? Maybe, maybe not. As ever, we will endeavor to do our best. Let's crack this thing open, and right off the bat, we got a roll call. Rockslide, Loa, Anole, Summoner, and Apocalypse. Now, we get a roll call for all the characters that we know and can easily recognize, but as for the rest that are about to be dropped into our laps, nada. <clears throat> Double page spread of creds, then back to the comics here. Or actually, we start the comics. We open back at that game that Rockslide and the Summoner were playing. Now, if you recall, their game was interrupted by the arrival of the Veg-type aliens for the Empire cash-in last issue. And, well, they're back at it again. And if I'm being honest, the game seems painfully dull to both play and watch. The game is interrupted again, but this time by Apocalypse. This is a good and bad thing. Good in that we get to stop playing this awful game. Bad in that uh, we are moving into the next phase of this issue, where, uh, do you hear that beeping? You hear that beeping? That is a dump truck backing up to our open heads about to dump 5,000 pounds of exposition right on in. Now, Apocalypse mentions that the external gate has been created and made functional, which we saw over in the Excalibur half of our X of Ten's prelude chapter. Now, they send the kids away. Rockslide, Loa, and Anolia, they're told, get out of here, you know. You guys can play your games later. We got something to talk about, Apocalypse and the Summoner, that is. So Apocalypse asks his grandchild, the Summoner, to speak of the history of Arako and something called the Fallen World of Amenth. And we actually get an entire blank page to introduce the story shift, just in case we'd miss it. Now we kick off with the splitting of Krakoa and Arako, which we already saw bits and pieces of during Hoxpox. Um, now the island was split in two with the Twilight Sword. There was a great battle with Arako and the aggressors shoved tidally into a sealed chasm. I think we already knew that, but to be honest, I really didn't care all that much the first time we read it. Enter Apocalypse, the first of the second generation of mutantdom on Earth. So uh, I guess he's no longer the first mutant ever, and instead it's these boring-ass Akarans. 
Great. We find out here that Apocalypse also had a wife named Genesis, and also four horsemen. We saw them during Hoxpox as well. Then Amenth, which uh, is apparently a dark world that somehow became involved in all this. I'm, I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, this is both kind of cryptic and overwrought to follow. And I'm really having trouble caring. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm trying. I'm trying. Um, now, there's this character called the White Sword. And he had a hundred champions, and they fought back the hordes, I think. Then, three hundred years ago, the summoner was born, and the people of Araco lived within a closed-off society here. There were towers, walls, stuff like that. Back to this White Sword fella, he'd fight with his one hundred against the Amenthi demons every single day until the last of his number would fall. But here's the thing. He's an external, so he was able to bring everyone back to life. So, they die, they come back, and then the White Sword the next day would take them into battle again. They would die, they'd come back, and again, and again, and again. So there's something from the past that might actually tie into the present situation with the Resurrection Protocols, sorta, right? Now, Genesis, the wife of Apocalypse, would say that this death and resurrection cycle became something of a religion, which I guess is another thing to tie then and now together. So, now the Arakoans, Arakans, I don't know how you say this, never actually knew defeat, as they could keep fighting forever. Now, their defeat, I think, would finally come at the hands of one of their own, a traitor called Iska, a mutant with the power to never lose. And I tell you, this feels kind of like Baby's first Grant Morrison character. Um, this Iska, I think um, she might belong in the Brotherhood of Dada, if you're familiar with uh, the Brotherhood of Dada from Doom Patrol. She seems like she'd fit right in. So, Iska was sent to parlay with the leader of the Amenthi Demons, whose name is Annihilation, and joined with the Amenthi as they were always going to win this struggle, and since her power says she can't lose, she had no choice, I think. I'm trying. I'm really trying here. And, you know, I feel like had we not spent the past, like, four issues of X-Men, like, fiddle-friggin' around with stupid funny haha stuff like brew-eating a giant egg and the Empire tie-ins, and maybe gave this Amenthi fairy tale a little, little bit of room to breathe, we might be getting something kind of interesting here. Instead, we're filling a five-pound bag with 50 pounds of content, just cramming and cramming and cramming to the point where we're finding out everything is so important that I can't actually glom onto any of it. It's just... It, I mean, is this our high-concept stuff that we've heard so much about? I don't know. Let's jump ahead to Genesis meeting with Annihilation. Now, Annihilation, it's worth noting, gives me vibes of the generic Hickman antler-headed aliens from uh, Avengers... Now, they cross swords, and Apocalypse is made a widower. Now, for the next hundred years, Amenth would decimate Araco, toppling towers, breaching walls, all sorts of nastiness. But ultimately, Araco was able to hold together, I think. Uh, they held together in the hope that Apocalypse was out there somewhere, raising a great society with whom he could come back and save the Arakans. I think. Next up, an info page, which... This entire friggin' issue probably should have been. Here we get a refresher on summoners. But these are the summoners of Amenth, not the summoners of Araco or wherever wherever the hell the summoner's from. It looks very familiar. Looks like the, the one we saw way back in X-Men number two. You know. 
We jump back to the present. Apocalypse brings the summoner to the caldera where he created the external gate over an Excalibur number 12. Now, the summoner will pass through and inform everyone who's survived that Apocalypse is coming to save them. And for this trip, he'll be accompanied by Banshee and Eunice the Untouchable because... why not? And that is pretty much where we leave it. We are on the doorstep of X of Tens. And, uh... Can't say I'm terribly excited, but, uh, I will, uh, I will try to be optimistic. Um, the next episode is something a little bit different. It's on our list, so we're going to cover it. Juggernaut number one. Don't know that it has anything to do with anything, but it's on our list. Gotta cover it. But first, let's talk about this issue of X-Men. Now, I hate the fact that I've been so negative on the best bunch of books here, but, uh, here we are again. Um... I feel like this was sort of the worst of all worlds sort of a situation here. Um, on this show, I, I'd i say I complain a lot. I observe a lot about how certain info pages that we get should actually be made into comics pages, right? I feel like the info page, the text page, whatever you want to call it, is kind of a gimmick that is abused. I, I mean, it's it's a gimmick that's abused, and it's not always required. Well, here I'd like to take that all back. Because this issue, X-Men number 12, needed to be one of two things. A story that unfolded over several issues, or just a friggin' info page. Actually, make that three things. Make that three things while I'm here. As loath as I am to suggest this, but maybe if this was an oversized one-shot, it could have worked better. Not that I want that... But this story, for all the information we get, definitely needed a little bit more room. I mean, this was an exposition dump, and not much more than that. This was a lazy way of dropping a whole bunch of backstory in our laps with the expectation for us to A, give a crap, and B, want to read more about it. And no, to both, I don't. I really don't. Now, that's not to say there weren't interesting bits to this, because there were. It's just the presentation that I find lacking. Maybe things needed to be shuffled around due to the COVID hiatus, right? That's a possibility, though how much longer are we going to be able to pass the blame onto that? Now, like I said during the rambly as hell synopsis that I, I tried, I tried, guys. Maybe had we not spent from issues 8 to 11 of X-Men on stupid crap, and maybe we had peppered bits and pieces of the X of Ten's lore throughout... We'd have, been, we'd have given some of these potentially interesting beats adequate room to breathe. I ask again, did we need to see Brew eat the damn egg? Did we need to see Vulcan and his pals getting drunk? No. <laughs> no to both. But that's what we got. And that's why we got all of this exposition and backstory jammed into this nearly impenetrable issue. I did not enjoy this. But I felt bad about not enjoying it, because Hickman is world-building, and I love world-building in my comics. And as I said, there were potentially interesting bits to this. I mean, let's look at some of the cool stuff here. As the art is panning through, you know, the eras of Araco or whatever, just uh, giving us a look inside, we see that they have, like, their own form, or, or their own take on the Quiet Council. I think that's pretty interesting. 
We also saw a battlefield littered with crucifixions looking straight out of like the cover of Uncanny X-Men 251. That very famous cover where Wolverine is, is crucified on that giant X. Here we have a battlefield full of that. Interesting stuff. The religion of resurrection, which is something we talk about a lot on this show. Interesting. So it's not that the ideas are bad or even half-baked. It's just that they're hitting us like hail on a tin roof. Just too much and all at once. If we absolutely needed stupid filler stories like the damned King Egg and the Empire Cashins, which apparently we did, then maybe this story should have just been an info page or three. At least it would have been probably less confusing than it was delivered in sequential art. Also, I probably would have skipped those info pages, so no harm, no foul, right? Overall, this should have been better. Lots of interesting ideas and parallels to our current Dawn of X landscape. Really, really good stuff. But way too jam-packed to be, to be both a satisfying and informational read. Just too damn much. It looked good, though. It did look good, and I, I think this is Lionel Yu's swan song on the X-Books, at least for now. I think uh, Mahmoud Azrar is coming on as the X-Men artist uh, with the next issue. So, something to look forward to, but, you know, hey, Lionel Yu knocked it out of the park for this one. I think he did a real good job. But uh, that's all I got to say about X-Men number 12. Uh, I hate to be so negative. So many episodes in a row. But, I mean, I'm, I'm not fishing for professional retweets, nor do I get these books for free, so I, I don't got any reason to lie to you. This is my honest opinion here. I think these could have been better. I'm willing to give the creators the benefit of the doubt and perhaps suggest that uh, the COVID hiatus had something to do with just how, like, stutter-stop these have been and uh, and just how the, the quality has has sort of fluctuated. You know, it's... It's a weird time to be, and it's a weird time to write, so it's possible that uh, we're dealing with some of that right now. But good ideas here, bad delivery, or maybe not bad delivery, just an uneven delivery. But uh, I don't know. We'll see how this goes as we get into the uh, the X of Swords uh, story proper in the uh, next few episodes. So that's all I got to say about X-Men number 12 here. But with X-Men number 12, we wrap up... All of our Dawn of X Wave 1 number 12 So Let's do our power rankings here And uh, You know I'm tempted To give the, the nod for number one book To Fallen Angels Just for not having a 12th issue Because none of these have been my favorite uh, as, as if you've been listening You'll know that uh, I had issues with uh, with all of these issues But Since we have to rank them I guess Let's do it now, out of the number 12s, I'd say the best one was New Mutants. Didn't care for it all that much, but it didn't annoy me either. Uh, or it didn't annoy me quite as much either. Very, very close second is Marauders, which uh, did, it did annoy me a little bit, but uh, it was better than the rest. Third would be this book, X-Men. Fourth would be Excalibur, because Ex- at least with X-Men, I didn't feel like I missed an issue. With Excalibur, I didn't know where the hell we were. And the fifth and final is X-Force, because uh, having Colossus Frog marched out among his peers in cuffs and chains was uh, not something I ever expected nor wanted to see in any of my X-Men comics here. I mean, I don't even think they did that when he was a bad guy. (laughs) And here he is as 
one of the X-Men being trotted out and uh, basically displayed as a bad guy, just heading to an interrogation. Not a good look, and uh, as I mentioned, not a good book. But those are the Wave 1, number 12 power rankings. Number 1, New Mutants. Number 2, Marauders. Number 3, X-Men. Number 4, Excalibur. Number 5, X-Force. Now, before we cut out of here, we have a short mailbag today, just one letter, so we will get right to it now. It's from Damien, and he's talking about, well, the issue right before this one, X-Men number 11. He says, it's weird to be reading X of Ten's lead-ins after reading the actual crossover. I think I've already shared that I gave up every X-Book except Marauders after the Brood story, but came back with X of Swords creation. This means I see the portents more clearly than I would have if I'd read this book as released. Rockslide being presented as the first character to approach the Summoner explains why he's so important in X of Tens. Rockslide? Eh? Not one of my favorites, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll withhold judgment to see how he is, uh, how he is portrayed in uh, X of Tens there. I think he's a character that would have benefited from being introduced kind of piecemeal. Uh, he was out of the... Uh, the uh, was it the Academy X uh, New X Men storyline where he was with the Hellions, I believe, with uh, with the kid named Hellion and like Dust and Mercury and stuff. That was just a time where they dumped a whole bunch of characters in our lap and said, "Care about these people," and then you tried to, and it's like, "Well, no, <laughs> I just can't." Maybe give them to us one at a time. Damien continues, "The Cotati invasion is presented perfectly in the rest of the issue." This issue actually makes me angrier about Empire colon X-Men, as it's clear that Hickman had a story that could incorporate Empire into his Krakoan world-building. Hell, just adding Exodus and indoctrinating the kids to that series would have given it a level of importance with very few changes. He could have editorialized about the Pretender and presented Explody Boy as an example of selflessness of mutants. Genuinely, this issue makes the crapness of Empire colon X-Men even more offensive. Yes, yes, absolutely. After we finished with X-Men number 11, I was suggesting that this would be the perfect tie-in for Empire if it was just kept to that one issue. Maybe make it a little bit longer, you know, throw the throw a little bit of the Vulcan stuff in there just to just to give the Kotadi um, the target of Krakoa, right? He's got to do something to make them mad. So they know to go to Krakoa and do what they do and then have Magneto crush him with a bunch of satellites. But yeah, this was uh, this. I think this was probably the best way to do it, and it makes the the miniseries feel like even more of a waste of time, and even more of just a an exploitative cash grab. Unfortunately, uh, Damien continues. It's nice to have another issue of X Men that plays to use strengths. He's the perfect artist for alien invasions, as he gets to draw lots of fighting and explosions. He's less good at drawing smiles. I can't imagine anyone trusting someone smiling like the Summoner does for a single moment. He comes across as really creepy and evil. Yeah. <laughs> that one, that I actually, uh, I actually like uh, Lionel Yu's uh, Summoner here because I don't know what this dude's all about. I, I, I think that, I think there's this weird, I don't want to say a coldness, like, uh, like, the, but because there, there is a warmth and a coldness to this character. There's just something you don't trust about him, and uh, I, I don't know how it's going to turn out in, uh, in X of Tens. But I really like the creepiness that that you adds to the summoner. 
it's definitely going to be weird seeing the summoner drawn by someone who isn't him. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming we're going to get some uh, some images of the summoner drawn by other artists in the next couple of uh, next couple of chapters. So that'll be interesting to see. But uh, yes, your point is well taken here. Uh, you just killed it with the with the explosions and, and dropping the satellites. I think he did a heck of a good job here. Really, really good stuff here. Now, Damien wraps up with until the entire nation of Krakoa does dry January. Make my next lapse. Well, I don't see that happening anytime soon. <laughs> so uh, we'll be together for a very long time, and that's a that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But that's all for the mailbag today. Uh, if anybody would like to write in and chat me up, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can check out blog posts and show notes over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com or xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com. If you'd like to join the conversation on Facebook, maybe tell me that I'm far too negative and I should, uh, I should be nicer to these books. Please feel free to do so. You can join us on 90s X-Men on Facebook. And you can listen to the rest of the Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that's where we'll leave it for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me, even in these uh, these more divisive issues. These, uh, I, Like I said, I, I hate being negative about these books. Um, because there's enough of that out in the world, isn't it? You know, it's, it's easy to complain. But, you know, I guess it's also easy just to say everything is sunshine and rainbows when it's uh, when it's not your true thoughts, right? But uh, I definitely want to thank everyone for sticking with me, even in these more negative episodes. So uh, thank you all. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya.